It's Wednesday, and that means you have downloaded the newest edition of Kicking Out at Two over at SoundCloud.com. Thank you all for joining us this week. We've got a very exciting show planned. Cousin Wild Bill Brown's going to join me shortly, and we're going to discuss and dissect SummerSlam 1993 in long form. Uh, the transition that WWF at the time was making during a steroid trial, Hulk Hogan's departure, Bret Hart and Yokozuna rising up the ranks, the Lex Express, and just the overall very forgettable and underwhelming theme that is SummerSlam 1993. But before we do that, um, unfortunately, we have some sad news this week. Uh, we just learned that Jim the Anvil Neidhart, legendary tag team wrestler from the Hart Foundation, has passed away at the age of 63. Uh, as of this recording, the only report I have on his passing is that he uh, had to go to the hospital suffering from seizures and convulsions, and unfortunately, he didn't make it. I know that in recent times, uh, through uh, Christopher Nowinski, former WWE superstar, on his social media, revealed that uh, Nightheart had been suffering from uh, an early bout of Alzheimer's. I don't know any other uh, issues with his health or any uh, of his uh, medical conditions that he may or may not have been going through, but it's very unfortunate that he's gone way too soon. A guy who doesn't get enough credit for his contributions and his time in the industry his time in the Hart Foundation with Brett the Hitman Hart really helped shape the tag team scene in the late 80s uh, to early 90s with Bret Hart. Uh, even his time as a member of the Hart Foundation stable and what he brought to that uh, during that USA-Canada storyline in 1997 uh, doesn't get enough credit, like I said, for, for what he's done for the business. A, a character that definitely fit the mold of a professional wrestler for sure. So... Uh, with that being said, we here at Kicking Out of Two would like to offer our thoughts, prayers, and condolences to uh, the loved ones, friends, and family, the Nightheart family, um, on this tragic loss. Uh, definitely gone way too soon. Rest in peace, Jim the Anvil, Nightheart. And uh, trying to transition into a more positive light here is going to be a little difficult, but I'll do my best. Uh, I want to share some love with uh, with all of you by uh, having you all check out the mania group over on facebook that's right the mania group are a group of individuals that set up shop in the parking lot of every stadium that wrestlemania is hosted in every year and they produce a tailgate party for everyone uh admission is usually roughly in between 40 and 50 dollars you get uh, food and beverage and proceeds from that tailgate go to research for pediatric cancer and the connor's cure foundation that wwe is heavily involved in so uh they provide a, a fun atmosphere food and beverage for wrestling fans to just hang out bullshit and talk wrestling before they get into the stadium and and uh you know exhaust themselves with seven hours of wrestlemania i think it's pretty cool uh my brother's been to a couple couple buddies of mine i know have been to uh you know the mania tailgate and they uh you know they say it's very fun and it's cool and it's something that they wish that they knew of earlier uh to to go spend some time before you go to wrestlemania so uh you know go give them a shout if you're going to be at wrestlemania next year in the new york metropolitan area at metlife stadium in east rutherford new jersey give them a holler on facebook uh, the mania club i'm sure that they will they'll they'll love to know that that you know 
you'll be there in attendance and I'm sure that if you are willing to offer any help and assistance uh, in, in getting their tailgate up and running at, at MetLife Stadium next year, I'm sure that those fine folks at Mania Club will greatly appreciate it. Go check them out, Mania Club on Facebook. Uh, I'd like to thank a few other individuals that have helped support this show early on here in our run and kicking out at two. First, uh, Pro Wrestling Edge. Tito over at Pro Wrestling Edge. Uh, great group of guys over there to just talk old school, new school wrestling. Go give them a like. Be a part of their group if you want to chop it up and uh, talk with the fun, passionate wrestling fans. Uh, Tito is allowed kicking out a two to uh, show our love on the page each and every week. Uh, you know, links and different things posted over there. So uh, go join Pro Wrestling Edge if you want to talk some fun pro wrestling with uh, Tito and the gang over there on Facebook. Uh, J.R. Perez, he runs the WrestlePod Talk page where he uh, he delivers news and rumors of the day or even of the week uh, in the pro wrestling world. He's just an overall good dude. I chopped it up with him recently. We talked some pro wrestling, and he's just a down-to-earth, really cool dude. So uh, go check him out over at WrestlePod Talk. He's been a big supporter of Kicking Out of Two. He's also a moderator of a really cool page I'm a part of on Facebook called Everything Wrestling Federation, where we uh, we buy, we sell, we trade wrestling merchandise, but we also you know get into some debates and discussions. And uh, you know if you uh, have any old wrestling merchandise you'd like to trade or anything you're looking for, head on over there to Everything Wrestling Federation. Uh, there's action figures, t-shirts, foam fingers, anything pro wrestling retro related when it comes to merchandise. They have it over there. There's stuff I never even knew existed that they have over there that I thought was pretty cool. Even if you're not in the market of buying, selling, or trading, just scroll through. You'll be fascinated at some of the stuff you see over at Everything Wrestling Federation. And on the subject of retro pro wrestling merchandise, since I've started this journey on kicking out at two, uh, I've been collecting some of the old WWF Hasbro wrestling action figures and in the process of doing that I've uh, you know struck up a friendship with some of the guys over at WFIGS Retro Wrestling Action Figures on Facebook uh, go give them a like if you're into uh, old school wrestling action figures Hasbro's LJN's Mattel's Jack's there's even some custom action figures guys are making and there's some stuff I don't even remember or never seen, seen before like the AWA Remco action figures I used to have a few of those when I was a kid the old AWA ring and steel cage some of the WCW Galoob action figures I have some some of those also in my studio as well so uh, go give them a, uh, a like over at wfigs retro wrestling action figures and allow me to remind you all that we are on social media first facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two that's right hit the like button be a part of the fun if you haven't already please do so or if you have just go tell a friend if they're on facebook and they like throwback retro pro wrestling discussions we got videos memes pictures debates discussions all kinds of fun retro pro wrestling at your fingertips go check us out on facebook and we're also on twitter too if you want a membership to the ko2 crew then you join us on twitter give us a follow our handle is at kicking out two that's k-i-c-k-n-o-u-t and the number two the same fun the same bullshit the same shenanigans that we do over on facebook we do it on twitter but 140 characters or less 
All right, stay tuned at the end of this program, at the end of this show, after Bill and I are done talking, uh, I'm going to offer some quick picks on some of the big matches set to take place this weekend in Brooklyn for SummerSlam weekend uh, between uh, NXT TakeOver and the SummerSlam events. So stay tuned at the end of the show where I'll offer you uh, some quick picks. I'm not, you know, not going to get too you know, in-depth on some of these matches, but uh, I thought I felt the need to address uh, some of the big matches that are set to take place this weekend. All right. All that's out of the way. Now let's get into the heart of the matter. The meat and potatoes. The main event, if you will, here on Kicking Out at 2. Here we are, Wild Bill Brown and I covering SummerSlam 1993. All right, bookending the SummerSlam theme here on Kicking Out at 2 this week as we are going to cover... The uh, SummerSlam 1993 event. It's the silver anniversary coming up on that event. Uh, 25 years ago, this took place. Uh, a very, uh, uh, I wouldn't say an underrated SummerSlam, probably one of the more forgotten SummerSlams, and there's probably some good reasons why this show is forgotten, but we're going to cover it in long form. We're going to cover each match, the buildup towards those matches, and uh, some events that took place uh, you know, in recent times before that SummerSlam event. Um, transpired from the Motor City in uh, Auburn Hills, Michigan. Joining me this week is a, a, a dear friend of mine, an individual who has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to professional wrestling, someone who's been in the business in different roles and uh, is just a, a, a down-to-earth good dude. Some would say he's my cousin. Uh, we, we really haven't uh, determined that as of yet, but joining me here to cover SummerSlam 1993, Bill Brown. How are you, buddy? Doing good. That's a fact. We are cousins. I mean, we've been saying this for about how many years now? Uh, well, turn it on me now. No, no. I mean, it's. It, I guess you could say it's a fact, but at the same time, I mean, you know, we we, we have our, we have mutual we have mutual cousins. Only in our yeah. <laughs> so many out there. That's right. Only in Arn, Kane, and Undertaker. All right. Them. Yeah. Those okay. Are oh, those are brothers. Only in Arn were cousins. I thought they were brothers. I don't know. Or is it Flair and Arn that Flair were cousins? Arn, Tully. Yeah, Tully. Yeah, they're all related. As long as they hold up the four fingers, they're family. That's good. All right. Um, glad to have you on board here. Uh, I, I asked you to be a part of this show basically because I like to talk wrestling with you and also because you are a wealth of knowledge, uh, being a few years older than me. And uh, I thought maybe you'd be able to bring a different perspective to this show um, and hopefully, you know, kind of. I wouldn't say change the minds of wrestling fans in, in regards to where this SummerSlam ranks of all time, but uh, kind of give somebody a, a, a different perspective of, uh, of, of, this, of this SummerSlam. But uh, before we get into that, I'd like to uh, you know, kind of touch upon some of the things you have done in the industry. You've been a ring announcer. You've been a refer you've, you've refereed. Uh, you were big on the tape trading scene for quite a while. Uh, you know, tell some of the listeners, myself about yourself uh, i think i started watching wrestling myself probably 1981 as a little kid mm -hmm. so I, I was small my, i wasn't even born yet my, uh, i didn't think you were <laughs> my older uh, cousin used to we used to go to church he'd bring me into the the room after at the house and we'd watch wrestling and so i, I because of him and him telling me what's going on i'd start following it yeah and after that i went to my first live events Saw Adrian Adonis against Bob Backlund oh, wow. matches and Blackjack Mulligan and Andre the Giant. So it was around that era, 82, 83, Snooka, Morocco. Started oh, wow. really getting into it during those days. And you start seeing stuff like that. Being a kid, not knowing the difference, 
That was some pretty, uh, you know, holy crap type of thing. Can you swear on this show? Yes, you can. Right. Yes. You know, F-bombs can fly. doesn't matter. <laughs> we are not PG. So once I got my driver's license, and I'm from Connecticut, much like yourself, yep. I uh, started going after the independent scene, and I started looking around. And the indie scene back then even, you know, people like Rick Rude, BWWF, and they're in a local show. Holy crap, man. Whole Rick Rude, Paul yeah. North main event. They, they were just on WWF TV. Wow. Ago. So I go to that show, and you start getting familiar with people and um, start taking people to the airport. Honky Talk Man needs a ride. Jimmy Snuka needs a lift. Warlord, do you have room in your Mustang for him? Well, I don't, but I'll take him. Barely. Wow. But I got him there. You know. So there's, there's all these people, and you start hanging out in the rooms. You start taking pictures. You start socializing you just start networking yes and i got my videos and we videotaped all the shows and can i have that yes addresses phone numbers contacts more people then you start getting involved in going to the shows and, and being a part of it and you know we need a referee oh do we you know go to school i knew jason knight he was in the area he he took me in and showed me what to do obviously you know the more the merrier to help his group out you never know with a school you need to put on a show you need people and yeah the more you could have in there the less you got to pay for other people to come in so i did that and then um a little bit of managing towards the latter part which was a lot of fun okay take a few bumps here and there uh just you know really good i i, I really enjoyed being a part of the wrestling business and uh to this day i still do once in a while get involved but I like being on you the, hit the show. You hit the convention cir circuits from yes. time to time. Yes, that's where you really get to know everybody. And, uh, you know, you can just walk right up to, uh, you know, Mr. Anderson out of the blue. Hey, what's up? Hey, you got any Ricky Steamboat stuff? Yes, I do. Come over here. You know? And <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> pretty cool. And you talk about things and, and the memories. You could sit down and maybe like a Butch Reed, Hacksaw Butch Reed. I sat there last time. I'm going to use an example the one convention I went to a year ago. Um he was from the 86, you know, era, yep. 90s. He was he was a legend out in Mid-South, but he's in New York now, and he doesn't think that someone like me would even have a clue what he did down there. If you, you know, Hacksaw Reed, Hacksaw Duggan, and everything else. So you talk, and you're like, holy crap, holy crap. Then the boogeyman goes up to him and says, hi, I'm the boogeyman. Nice to meet you. And Butch Reed is like, who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a conversation for an hour. The boogeyman gets the uh, the brush off. Who's, a, who's on Who's on TV? Yeah, that's that's wow. That's so, wild. Just cool, you know. Cool as heck. Um, one of my favorites, um, Bob Backlund. Yep. And uh, he's he's Connecticut a local, Connecticut local. Yep. Um, actually, it was an oil man for me. Gave me. Uh, I remember that. I remember seeing pictures. Yeah. But um, he's cool. He's one of the coolest guys as a friend that you could ever meet. So when you, you get people like that and you start talking to everybody. It just you become a part of the family even though i've never taken a bump from a from a serious wrestler before other than being a referee you know it's kind of cool that they they kind of you know ask for your opinions how was my match i've never worked a match i don't yeah. know how to really critique that but as a fan i'll you know i'll tell them something and they take it they don't feel bad about listening to my point of view that's cool um just a lot of good things uh being a part of wrestling and now i'm 45 i just turned 45 and i've been watching and doing this for you know we're gonna look at uh, close to on the getting into the 40 year mark so wow yeah wow that's really cool and that's it's, really I'm cool i'm dating myself here but no that's uh, all right that's all right well, we're gonna talk about something that i remember watching live i got all my friends together and uh we ordered it live on pay-per-view in 1993 
SummerSlam. I had a house full of probably 30, 40 people. Wow. Sitting on milk crates from my uh, store. We brought extras in, so we have chairs. That's cool. And uh, a big 48-inch rolling TV. And, oh, wow. Yeah, those are... Uh, I, I got, remember I, watching it live, and I it, I can remember it almost like yesterday, of course. I, I got one question for you. You you, you mentioned this in you know your opening. You said you know oh wow Rick Rude and Paul Lunder from the main event they were just on WWF TV. Um, how big was the independent scene? Let's say at that in that time period in professional wrestling because for me my first dose of the independent scene was right around the time I think. I met you in 2001 for, uh, you know, helping set up the ring for Assault Championship Wrestling and uh, Jason Knight. So what, what was the scene like, let's say, in 1990? Was it was the independent scene a big thing? Was it, it, It's certainly not what it was or what it is today. I think for the time period that I was in, it was a big scene because currently these were new names that are just released or, you know, touring on the individual circuit. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, there's so many yeah. because there's people with 20, 30-year careers that have been in and out, and there's so much talent out there that drew on television because TV is everywhere. Yeah. And so there's more names on a show now that you can recognize, I suppose, back then where you had to get a marquee name, you had to get Paul Orndorff, you had to get Rick Rude because that's going to sell the tickets. Yeah. Um, you know, now it's, you know, you're going to have, uh, you know, just regular names that are mid cars in WWE, like Fandango might be on it. That's not going to sell a lot of tickets. But yeah. Th- there were some big names back. Honky Talk Man. When he left uh, Titan, he was, on all the indie shows, he drew like crazy because yeah. he was the greatest Intercontinental Champion of all time. He as, That's his promotion, you know, and he really... He still runs with that to this day. Yeah, and he would make the, he would draw the people in, and he did yeah. autograph signings too, and who didn't want to meet somebody that, you know, people thought really was the greatest yeah. Intercontinental Champion of all time. Nowadays, you know, there's a lot of different talent, and... You know, not not undermining anything. I mean, mm-hmm. Everybody's great, but um, you had to really go with a strong marquee uh, match at the end. Like Don Morocco would come in and yeah. he left, or or uh, there was a lot of different names that were on the show. And then the undercard would be filled with people like uh, a Kevin Sullivan, uh, Vic Steamboats, and uh, Power Twins, and maybe um, the NWA guys, uh, Tony Rumble's guys from. From Boston, yeah, yep. to come down and, and work. Wow, Tony man. Rumble. I haven't heard that name in yep. quite a while. Right. Holy cow! The NWA, so he always had the connections of bringing some talent. So Candido would come down with him, Chris Candido. Yeah, and um, there was a few others that Sonny was, matter of fact, there at the time. She was uh, in college, and his girlfriend, and she'd go to the shows. And she hadn't made it on TV at WWF at that never time, right? Did anything except go to college and did not want to do anything. Wow. She was doing pictures one time with me. Uh, we were right next to each other. My friend, uh, John Kelleher, you know that guy. Yeah, I know John, yeah. Doesn't even deserve the plug, but he got it. Johnny, how you doing, man? Uh, <laughs> but he was there, and he has actually a picture of me and her right next to each other doing uh, photos at Century uh, Toyota at the time in Wallingford, right in a car dealership. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think the Bushwhackers were in the main event against some tag team. You know, you got Bushwhackers back then. You're looking at right after even WWF. They're pretty big, you know? Yeah. And, uh... You know, nowadays, you could have a lot of talent, but I think that the, the depth of the talent back then was, you know, you get a real person right off the TV, a star, and it, it drew some of the people in, and that's what made the tickets sell. They sold out the Oakdale one time with a show. The whole Oakdale Theater was yeah. just about sold out, 1,000 or 1,200 pe- uh, people there. Holy shit. Big, yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize how big the independent scene was back then. I mean, like I said, I, I my first dose of it was in 2001 in a time period where, you know, 
WWE was the only game in town, you know. The TNA hadn't even started yet. So seeing some of these guys in smaller venues like the Meriden Independence Club, you know, it was like it was it was very surreal. It was almost sad in some ways to, you know, these guys who I had seen six months prior on television, like a Balls Mahoney or a little Guido or, you know, Chris Candido or or, you know, rest they wrestled in front of thousands of people. Now there's probably fifty people in this fucking room that they're working in front of. So I mean it was it was definitely a, a, a very strange time period in the wrestling business and uh you know no different in some ways in, in terms of the strange department when you know comes to the wrestling business was 1993 uh for me as a fan uh i had a hard time transitioning from this time period because i grew up on hulk hogan and hulk hogan had left wwf at the time and uh he was no longer wrestling he had gotten screwed out of the title by yokozuna at that king of the ring that year and you know they were using a lot of newer guys and i really had a hard time buying into lex luger as an american hero because i always thought hulk hogan was an american hero and sergeant slaughter to a certain degree and so uh you know not seeing macho man wrestling on this SummerSlam event like uh, you know, I was just starting to warm up to Bret Hart and, uh, you know, they had taken the title away from him and they put him in a, a storyline with Jerry, the King Lawler, who that was my first exposure to, you know, seeing Lawler on TV. I saw him in the magazines, like the bill after magazines and stuff like that. I knew who he was, even some of the AWA stuff, but, um, it was very, I, I really had a, I guess hard time is like the, the theme here when it comes to transitioning into 1993, what is your take on the overall state of the wrestling business and the WWF in 1993? Huge changes. And uh, a lot of it had to do with uh, 1992. Once the uh, steroids became a little more known and they started thinking about going to trial, mm -hmm. the wrestlers were getting caught and tested. They were doing public talk shows uh, a lot of scandals, uh, rumors, and everything else. You had to, all of a sudden Ultimate Warriors wrestling with a painted bodysuit because he's not as big as he used to be. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're seeing a lot of changes. And then Hulk Hogan would obviously be your favorite at the time. He was the first and forefront per person to blame would say the prayers, take the vitamins. And when he went on Arsenio Hall and he was not truthful about what was going on personally with his steroids that he was using mm -hmm. that was a big blow because it came back to haunt him the company had to hide him for a while and they were afraid to go all the way with him anymore so they had to make the changes they had to figure it out and who did they go with i mean you had bret hart but way too small yeah not believable to the wrestling fans eyes in in the 90s because bigger was always better they were conditioned to seeing bigger guys right. yeah so this was one hell of a, a change for anybody to um to go through and it, us wrestling fans back then we were always patient enough to wait mm -hmm. to change but it seemed like that change never took place 93 struggled through 94 limped along in 95 but really didn't get going until about 96 when the momentum started changing in the town and they really started catching out with austin's and Mick Foley's and those people. But prior to that, there was a lot of, there was no challenges also from WCW. So they weren't so. putting out the best, best stuff either. And so they weren't cable television, 1993, yeah. the year that we're talking about with SummerSlam was also the debut of Monday night raw. Yep. And that was a live broadcast for the most part, every other week or, you know, 
as good as live can get, live commentary. They never did live commentary on a, a television show. Yep. Superstars always had the studio over. and The green screen in behind, yeah. announcers in front of the arena, and the fake crowd noise piped in. Well, now we're in New York City, and we've got this raw show with crowd chants and reactions and lots of unpredictable things and, you know, uh, throwing in a wall what what'll stick with Friar Ferguson well he's not that good all right we won't hear we're giving you know we're just going live. Damian Demento yes there's a lot of things and so you have all these things happening and it seemed like when you go went into Wrestlemania is when things really started to change because they went back with Hogan yeah they brought in beefcake they went to the well and then they had Hogan win the belt at the end mm-hmm. so I don't know how you felt about it but when Yokozuna ended up at the king of the ring Pinning Hogan in the fashion he did, of course, which kind of stunk because he should have put him over cleanly. Yeah. But that was something that ha- Hogan was done now, so you had to move on to what it was going to be, and that's where we get into the main event of '93 with Luger. I think Vince was in panic mode mm-hmm. because he needed something that was close that he could make as a, you know a genuine hero to the people, and he went all the way with Lex. I, I don't think he could have done that with. Canadian Bret Hart. No. I don't think he could have done that with Macho Man, who was starting to get up there in years, already had his run with the belt, and wasn't going to match up as well with, with Yoko. So they went with Lex, and that was tough because you do remember Lex, yep. WCW. Total package. Total package. Huge. He even went to WBF. Yeah. Um, how do you accept him coming out with red, white, and blue all the time? And uh, yeah, he's not a very personable person with. with the fans anyway mm-hmm. did you watch the um lex express on the wwe network i did watch some of that yeah and See a lot of the interaction that he had with the fans? it looked very awkward he yeah. it looked like he didn't know how to uh, interact with with them in many ways and i was surprised that they that they showed a lot of that that, that footage seemed very raw and unedited like right. like a lot of you know bus for about a half hour yeah i was like <laughs> all right we get it, it the, the bus works it's driving like it's <laughs> had to get every angle and speed up slow down and get by and add music if you if you guys want some really good background noise you head on over to the wwe network into the hidden gems section and uh, it's about three hours of the uh, the, the the journey with the Lex Express and then the first few minutes well, I shouldn't say the first few minutes because the, actually the first half hour is of the actual uh, slam on the Intrepid which we'll discuss uh, in, a, in a few moments but the um the there's a shot of uh the the camera following the bus or the bus is following the camera i should say and it just keeps going and going and going and i think even like it, you could hear going yeah you could hear someone in the background I'm being yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think they're getting off this exit here like <laughs> it, was, it was it was it was funny i was just surprised that they actually put that up there but um you you wanted me to you know my my take on the, you know the hogan uh WrestleMania title. Uh, I didn't watch. I didn't watch a lot of pay per views live. I'll be honest with you. I was disappointed I didn't get to watch this show live because um, I I'm a big fan of outdoor like stadium wrestling shows and especially like wrestling during the daytime. So like I thought like the look um, cosmetically of this WrestleMania was cool. Like as a kid at ten years old, I was like, wow, like they're in the Roman Coliseum and they're all dressed up in togas. Like it sounds like a party. Like I'd like to be there and you know there's wrestling matches and so when I saw the still shots that Hogan won, he wasn't advertised for the title match. It was a surprise at the end. I was like, 
10-year-old me was like, all right, that transition that I was having a tough time with, like, he's back. He's the champion now. Like, I thought this was the coolest thing ever. I begged my parents to get the replay. But, no, they wouldn't let me get the replay. I ended up watching on VHS later. But uh, I thought it was it was definitely done for shock factor and to kind of boost that WrestleMania because at the time that co- the company was going through a transition with changing, you know, the talent over. And so Hogan being put in the title picture, um, was seen as, you know, like a, like a shot in the arm in a way. And it, it, it got me as a fan, especially as a Hogan fan. Um, so I was kind of looking forward to like, you know, seeing like who he's going to mix it up with, whether it be Yokozuna again and Bret Hart and maybe even like Hogan and the narcissist Lex Luger, you know, or, or, or a Hogan and a Shawn Michaels, you know what I mean? Like I, as a at 10 years old, I wasn't fantasy booking, but I was like trying to map out like what the, the, the direction Hulk Hogan was going to take as the champion. Um, obviously, I wasn't happy with him losing the title to Yokozuna at the King of the Ring that year. Um, but when he lost it, I thought, well, he's got to get a rematch. He was screwed. The cameraman shot the fireball out of the lens. Like, he's got to get a rematch. And not the case. And not the case. He just, like, he disappeared. And that was the worst part of the transition for me was that, like, I was so conditioned and used to, okay, if Hogan lost, he's going to get his revenge. Earthquake tried to take him out years prior. He came back and got his revenge. Sergeant Slaughter threw a fireball in his face, and he got his revenge, you know, a little while later. Randy Savage got his revenge. You know what I mean? Like, I was used to Hogan always, you know, coming out the winner, and at the end of the day, Hulk Hogan was going to stand tall, and he didn't stand tall in 1993. And so that was tough for me, and what was even tougher was that at 10 years old I liked Lex Luger in WCW as the total package his stuff he did in the horseman when he was a good guy wrestling against the horseman I dug Luger but at 10 years old you know I looked at Lex Luger as a Hulk Hogan copycat you know at 10 years old that was the phrase copycat he's a copycat of Hulk Hogan he's you know Hulk Hogan's a real American hero not Lex Luger he should be the total package like I just had a hard time getting into that you know I tried it on it just didn't fit with me and that was probably like I said it's the overall theme for this show and just having a hard time transitioning um without a life without Hulk Hogan and even with Randy Savage not being on the card on that that, that SummerSlam was difficult for me because I was like he's the macho man like he's cool as hell like why isn't he have a match why isn't he wrestling someone I even thought macho man could have been a good replacement to at least challenge Yoko for the title you know I didn't think he would have been the guy that was gonna take him to the promised land and 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 reach back to the glory days of the WWF but I thought at 10 years old that like macho man was a was believable to at least challenge for the title. Well, Beca- back to that um, show is that was the first pay-per-view ever the WWF had produced where Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage did not have a match on it. That was the very first one. That's wild. That, I know it, it's funny that you say that because I did not know that. And usually when I do these shows. I try to touch up on some homework and, you know, you, you brought the, you, you brought the research and you got the laptop here. You know, you definitely brought it with that. That's cool as hell. I mean, I didn't think that's the first time that they, that neither of them, cause yeah, if you think about it, they weren't running 12 pay-per-views a year like they did, you know, in a few years, you know, after this, but, uh, that's very interesting. Um, so the direction was set from late 92, you know, just, you could tell that Vince was just getting nervous about the older guys and, realize you had to build from the future yeah and i know we've heard it you know you mentioned about bruce pritchard and a lot of stuff that he has on his podcast he talks a lot in depth and he was a part of it and he knows you know the direction they were going to go yeah in. and uh it's pretty interesting to listen to, to the way the mindset was going um, they were uncertain of where to head 
they obviously want to keep the gravy train rolling and have Hogan and Savage and everybody, but they realize that they couldn't do it any longer. Yeah. And the Ultimate Warrior, and you know, he was he failed a test, and uh, British Bulldog, you know, prior to that failed a test. A lot of things were going wrong. Sid had, wasn't he another one that was, was going to be one. supposed to be like a top guy, and that right. and that that didn't turn out. So who do you go to? You you go to. The guy they picked up in 1984 from Stampede, Bret Hart, loyal employee, you know, picking up in popularity. You know, we're talking eight, nine, ten years later, he's starting to look good. So there were some of those guys, and, you know, there was a few others that they, they wanted to take a chance with. Obviously hard to sell on because the public wasn't ready for the new transition, the new generation, as That's they right. called it, of WWF superstars. Now, I got, a, I got a question for you. You know, you talked about how... Um, they were going with a smaller guy like Bret Hart. They couldn't do it with some of the bigger, more established guys because of the the scandal they were involved in with, with the you know the early parts of the steroid trial. Hindsight being twenty twenty, do you find it interesting that they were they were flirting with the idea of of going with Bret Hart, and at one point they gave him the championship, and then he lost the title at that WrestleMania that year to Yokozuna. Yet. They're so worried about their image because of this steroid scandal, yet they went to the well in some regards with a bigger guy and chose Luger, who doesn't exactly look naturally fit, you know? In, in some ways, you know, he's, he, he had to have been taking some stuff at one point or another to, to look the way he did, especially in his, you know, his time in WCW. He was, he was shredded like you wouldn't believe. Do you, do you find it... All right, let me just all right, let me rephrase the question. Do you think that they were they were very undecided in in the direction they were going and based on you had one guy like Luger and then you had the complete opposite in Bret Hart? Luger they thought would bring in more more viewers, more money and Bret they didn't think that he was going to carry an interview and the people weren't going to believe him. He was he was jobbing on primetime wrestling every week to the Barbarians and everything else every week. Mm-hmm. So, how do you get the credibility and now when he beats Ric Flair, how do you do that? Now, with Luger, supposedly, from what Luger has said, he was passing the tests. He had ways to pass the tests. So he had Vince fooled, if he was passing the test, to think that he was a clean athlete. So, so, he, so according to Luger, he was, he was clean. Well, now he says he was never clean. Oh, uh, okay. In this day and age. But back then, he always said... He, he found a way clean. to pass the test. And he, was pass- and he said he was passing the test. Wow, interesting, interesting. You know, there being, yeah, he was being tested and he was, wasn't clean at all. Upon doing my research on this subject, I was, um, I was looking up some stuff, and I didn't know that they did this. Um, in the weeks leading up to this show on Monday Night Raw, because Luger had kind of made this quick transition from being the narcissist to, you know, Yankee Doodle Dandy and, you know, the all-American hero. Um, they were doing these shoot-style type interviews with him on Raw where they were trying to, you know, get the people to know him on a more personal level about his personal life, his upbringing, growing up, being in college and and excelling in athletics and playing professional football, Um and then, you know, it was like a three-part series in the weeks prior. And, and I didn't know they did this back then. So this was like I, – I just found this out like recently as I was doing the research before this show. And one of the more fascinating things about that three-part interview was in the third interview, uh, Luger discussed – uh, his use of steroids and how he abused them and had taken drugs prior to his time in the WWF. And considering where the company was from a legal standpoint with the steroid trial and all the moving parts that was going on with that, I was 
I was surprised looking back on it that they aired that sort of stuff, that they let that air on Raw. I mean, it was so unscripted and not to use the phrase, but raw and real of, you know, his accounts of his his steroid abuse that they used it for this storyline to get people to relate to him and get behind him as he was challenging for the WWF championship against Yokozuna. I just found it so like I said, fascinating that this came out during that time period, that they let that air. I think that they were taking a chance because Hogan had denied it all. So now they're going to give you a guy that's going to admit. Okay. That in the past. That's a good point. I had done this. Now, don't forget, even Vince McMahon himself used the phrase many times, when steroids were legal, yep. and they were legal. Yep. So he always used to use that. But now, yeah. we don't ever, we don't condone that. We're all drug-free. But they always brought up the past if something had happened well that's when they were illegal so luger if he was using them maybe it was during a time when they were illegal Mm -hmm. and also he's not using them now he is the american hero yeah they did go all the way with trying to promote him as clean cut and he did look a lot different from when he was using in wcw even though he was still pretty cut up yeah he didn't have the mass he didn't have the heavy weight like he used to yep so i could buy it as, as something but Yes, Vinso, he always told us, too. He said, I used steroids when they were legal. Yeah, so. the, the phrasing, the wording, yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. As you were just, as you were explaining that, um, it, it reminded me of a, um, of, a, of a similar style interview that they had did with Hogan uh, in February of 93, right before his return to... Um, to uh, uh, WrestleMania 9, you know, with Beefcake in that tag match, where... They addressed Hogan's dishonesty from the Arsenio Hall show. They didn't, they didn't exactly go into great detail with it, but you know, in some ways, Hogan apologized for that. You know, being dishonest and not being the role model that he should have been looking up to children. So now that you think of now that you know now that you just explained it and the reason behind it, I I, I guess it's not so fascinating for me anymore. I could definitely see why they why they did what they did by airing the Luger stuff um, and. It also shows what kind of a falling out, I guess, Hogan had with them, you know, prior to leaving, you know, you know, with dropping the title to Yokozuna, that they would, you know, not bury him on TV, but, I mean, you know, in a way, like, prove a point by having Luger be so upfront and honest about the drug use. They had a lot of, uh, they had a lot of corrections to make in 1993, and, and Hogan, you know, he was being dishonest earlier, so he had to clean that up. Yeah. And, there wasn't a fan out there that didn't know the truth because it was blasted in the media that Hulk Hogan was a user. So he had to do so. Yep. Because if he was going to continue to hide it, it would, it would just never have worked out. He would never even be able to come back without taking the backlash. And, jeez, uh, look at the problems Hogan's found since then, but that's yeah. a story for another day. Yeah. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but, right? Uh, so everybody that was using, um, you know, there's, there was that was the business back then, and, and these guys will tell you it was plentiful. There was the doctors in the locker room that was giving him away. You know, he's the one that got in the most trouble of them all and went to jail. Zahorian, right? Absolutely. So is he still in prison? Nope, he's out. Really? I don't know what he's doing. He's I, definitely not practicing medicine. That's for sure. Uh, no, I'm not going to schedule any appointments with yeah. Doctor Z. <laughs> <laughs> I heard stories that he used to like 
I think it was like Allentown, Pennsylvania, where they steal a lot of their television tapings. Yes. And he was like, that was the time and the spot when you, you know, where, yes. you know, when and where you got them from him. Yes. Whoever wants, just go on in. And he thought he had a way to do it. I don't know all the details. I've heard many different stories. But yeah. the guys would go in and come home. Interesting. But he was also, he had to check their, you know, heart condition or whatever. Because the State Athletic Commission was in effect there. Yep. So all the wrestlers did have to get monitored for a blood pressure and stuff yes. like that yeah uh, they all knew that dr z also had something if they needed it and i'm sure the price was very fair because he was making a killing off everybody in the business at the time and uh it goes without saying what has happened since then but yeah that's it's a whole different business back then oh yeah oh yeah nowadays, for sure. it's very clean it's amazing that you know the way wwe is a public company now and uh you know it's it's all about kids it's all about you know everything with charities and everything else and no blood if they could help it it's 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 amazing you know we're talking about 1993 where you know wcw was was you know they were set on having blood matches and ecw was at the cusp of starting to really get going and they were going to get a little extreme in 94 95 and totally get violent yeah thing in 96 97 so you know now look at it you know it's all about make a wish and everything else. And yeah, you know, you're, you're you're you bring up a great point there. I mean, and advertisers. Yeah, the money's in the, in the advertising. Well, and the TV deals too. The Absolutely. TV deals that they've gotten recently with Fox and 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 USA and how big Disney was. Yeah, they did it because they were clean. Yeah. WWE hasn't looked back since they tried. WWE to- is the Walt Disney of the professional wrestling industry, hands down. I mean, you know, and and yes, they have a checkered past, you know, mm-hmm. from a public relations standpoint. But now it's, I mean, I'm sure that there's controversies now within the company. You know, it's just, it's just, in, it's more controlled uh, in in many ways. So uh, anybody gets in trouble, though, I mean, you look at some of the people, and I'm not to jump off our subject. No, no. Slam, but you know, you got. Uh, domestic disputes or anything like that yep. you'll never these guys Enzo Amore will just throw his name out there because he's the most recent I hate to throw out names but just allegations Yeah, you're not going to get bothered with you're gone they don't even care about proving yeah. anymore with Rich Swan, anybody else they don't need any black clouds or any negative stigmas for, towards any of their employees yeah. because if something does go wrong or something is proven it could have a bad reflection in the stock market and could really affect their business standpoint yeah I mean, I guess I understand it to a certain degree. You know, every every case, uh, you know, a case by case situation, you assess it, you know, differently than others. But uh, nonetheless, all right, let's get back on track here with, uh, you know, our, our SummerSlam 1993 review. Here's here's what we're going to do, Bill. We're going to uh, go down each match that took place on this card, and we're going to, you know, as we get to each match, we're going to discuss some of the key points and the buildup of each match, um, some you know memorable moments in the you know the the weeks leading up to it and things that you know worked and didn't work and some of the matches on this card didn't have the greatest buildup and so i mean we're just going to kind of fly by the seat of our pants a little bit you know i do have some kind of a rough format outline if you will um so uh you know we kicked things off on this SummerSlam 1993 event from the palace of auburn hills in suburban detroit michigan as the uh the 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 opening of the pay-per-view shows uh lex luger and the lex express uh outside the arena as they are greeted by a mob of uh red-blooded american wrestling fans don't get me wrong this event sold out I think there was about twenty-two or twenty-three thousand people there. It's a big building. So it was working. Yeah. It was. Uh, they weren't papering the place too much. So. No. 
When it came to events like that, I, they, I think they did well. I think it was the television tapings that, that didn't do too great. Right. Like when they used to run the smaller buildings, even high school gyms, they used to run Monday Night Raw and sometimes. 23,000 fans was a pretty good deal, you know, so that was, that was great. But um, the matches that they got, like you said, some of them um, just kind of, well, we got to do this because, you know. Yeah, throw this guy in the card here so and here there. Here we go. Let's but the, fir the first match that, that had some pretty good buildup and some steam was uh, – uh, Razor Ramon defeating the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase in what would be uh, DiBiase's last match ever in the history of professional wrestling. Unfortunately, uh, his oh wait a minute no, no. he whipped all Japan wrestling. Oh, that's right. I rem I'm sorry. I'm and he hurt his neck in January. Okay, I remember that now. Yes, now I remember that. Okay, he wanted to get out because he. I think he just had enough time on the road and he really had he to wanted to his life at home because he had reduced the schedule. Now I remember. I should know this because I did. I, I got you. Yeah, no, please, by all means, I, I, I don't mind it whatsoever. So, no, you're, like I said, you are a wealth of wrestling knowledge, and I appreciate your, your contributions towards this. Uh, so, yeah, this was um, well, this was definitely DiBiase's last match in the WWF, I should say. Let me, let me stand corrected it there. It was. It was his last wrestling match. Yeah, his last wrestling match in the WWF. Um, heading into this match at the time, um, this was uh, – this, this match was uh, – sparked due to DiBiase's um he found the humor in Razor Ramon getting humiliated by the one two three kid on that famous episode of Monday Night Raw going as far as to uh offering a job for Razor Ramon to be his servant and Razor you know not taking the uh the the, the position under DiBiase and and his uh million dollar or the early parts of his million dollar corporation I should say um which then led to DiBiase trying to prove to Razor that he could beat the one two three kid on an episode of Wrestling Challenge and unfortunately DiBiase came up short with a little bit of help from a Traction with Razor Ramon, the one, two, three kid earned victory, um, which then really gets us to SummerSlam between the two. Uh, give me your thoughts on uh, the the Razor Ramon one, two, three kid, uh, that f infamous match from Monday Night Raw, and uh, your thoughts on DiBiase and his career as a whole. Well, Money Inc. was together, so you, yep. you had uh, one, two, three kid, and um, he was teaming up yep. with Razor, right? So yep. They had become partners by then and i think uh, later on in the pro in the show we're going to see a match with the other half of yeah. the teams facing each other um but yeah the kid he was kind of one of those guys what do you do with and razor he's a team player that's for sure he, he will uh he will make somebody put make somebody get ahead he took that fall on tv it was one of the most exciting moments of raw yeah. of the year back then that one hour show did not have a lot of exciting moments that was one of them yeah and um the crowd was into it and then like you said dibiase said that he could do it he could beat him he didn't and it, it set the stage for uh this matchup but lo and behold um dibiase was pretty much planning on making this his exit anyway so he did uh he come up short against the razor and don't forget now we're we're getting into the the click sort of uh formation and they're pol politicking. They know that all the things we discussed, and they know the new generation that they got to push. And they're in, you know, they're getting their nose involved. And we're going to talk later with Shawn Michaels' match as well, yep. and how that might have triggered the the result. Yeah. So um, yeah, you know, this this is happening. And the first match, it, it wasn't memorable at all. No. Deviat, nobody knew he was leaving. I was shocked. He was always one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't understand it, but. It, it, his eight years in the WWF were, were coming and going, and, and the kid, you know, he put up a, I mean, not the kid, Razor, 
was going to be a big part of the of the company. So the right move was made. He he, he did come out victorious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, nothing memorable, nothing to write home about. Uh, I remember as a kid. Uh, I thought it was uh, rather interesting that Razor Ramon was wearing all pink. I thought that was reserved for Bret Hart. I, <laughs> I mean, in, in some res- in some respects, looking back on it, um, you know, I I always thought certain guys didn't cross certain boundaries when it came to like you know what colors guys wore. Like you always knew Hogan wore the red and yellow, and you know Bret always wore the pink and black. And so I thought it was interesting that Razor Ramon was wearing you know the same colors as as, as Bret the Hitman Hart. Um, yeah, I mean, nothing really too memorable. I didn't know DiBiase was leaving at the time either. And uh, I was, the, like I said, an ongoing theme here on this show, and you're probably going to be sick of it by the end of it, is the rough transition that I've had to, that, that, that I'm taking. <laughs> so I had a hard time, not that DiBiase lost, but getting into the idea that Razor Ramon was right. a good guy. Exactly. Because he was the bad guy. He sure was a good bad guy, too. He was a very good bad guy. And so I was like, why is he a good guy? Why are they cheering him? Why is why is he taking why is he sticking up for the one, two, three kid when the one, two, three kid beat him on Monday Night Raw in that in that shocking match? Like I was I wasn't as sophisticated as a viewer at 10 years old, obviously, as I am now, I should say. But I was that was a, a part of the transition where I was like, you know, damn, like, why is What's what's the deal with Razor Ramon? He used to not care about anyone. Now all of a sudden he's got feelings. Like that was yeah. just you know something something difficult for me to, to to grasp and understand at ten years old. But maybe I shouldn't have understood it at ten years old. I don't know. But um, yeah. So uh, let's move on to the next match here. Uh, the Heavenly Bodies challenging the Steiner Brothers for the World Wrestling Federation Tag Team Championship. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of great buildup going into this match. Uh, Jim Cornette made his debut in the World Wrestling Federation on August the 2nd of 1993 on Monday Night Raw. Uh, he was in, cutting an in-ring promo with Bobby the Brain Heenan. And then during that interview, he had revealed that he was going to be bringing the heavenly bodies from Smoky Mountain Wrestling to the World Wrestling Federation. And they were going to be challenging the Steiner brothers for the tag team titles. Didn't say he was going to, you know, that that match was going to take place at SummerSlam. But um, in the weeks to follow, uh, the Steiners kind of had their hands full in some other matches with Money Incorporated because they still were kind of bouncing the tag team championships back and forth between each other. So they weren't really paying a whole lot of attention to the Heavenly Bodies. Um, give me your thoughts on the Heavenly Bodies and Jim Cornette. I mean, Jim Cornette is regarded as one of the greatest managers of all time. But the Heavenly Bodies, uh, me personally, I feel were a very underrated tag team and if given the opportunity they, they could have had a longer run in the WWF oh, yeah. Tom Pritchard is, is one of the best out there in yep. the business and as a tag team Tom could gel with, with many people and, and Jimmy Del Rey as his partner they, they've got it together in Smoky Mountain but what the hell is Smoky Mountain wrestling to the average WWF fan in 1993 they yep. don't know they know Jim Cornette because he's been around in the 80s in, in uh, NWA but this Heavenly Bodies, on August 2nd, he said, was his debut. Yep. That's not enough time to educate the fans into taking the contenders seriously. And uh, granted, the match wasn't bad, and, and the Steiners actually, you know, they're going to have a good match anyways because they were so hot at the time. And yeah. The bodies were good. But it just wasn't anything that me as a viewer, I, I was curious because I knew who the Heavenly Bodies was, and I was one of the small percentage of people that were excited to see how this team would do. Mm-hmm. But most people had no idea. And uh, even the Steiners, I mean, the fans were into them, but 
they were relatively new as well. They weren't yeah. really in the promotion that well, and they're the tag team champs. They debuted at the Royal Rumble that year. And against so, the Beverly Brothers. They're, luckily, they were they were fantastic in the ring. I mm-hmm. mean, there was, there was a, one of the best teams that was out there. Yeah. They ranked up in the top five at the time. And uh, the ironic part is, if you watch the broadcast at the beginning, who's the announcer? Todd Pettengill. Yes. Was out there. He was interviewing... His mother and sister. sister. Yeah. And, uh, His sister looks like she. <laughs> holy cow! She looks like she fell asleep in the tanning bed for about a week and a half. I think they said uh, they said something about uh, what is it like to have, be the sister of the Steiner brothers? And she goes, "When Rick and Rob come." Yep. By. And she threw out the the main names, and then they asked the mother. I think. Um, Pettengill goes, no more Frankenstein's by the by that lamp, and she goes, yes, whatever you say. Like she didn't, yeah, she didn't like, give a crap. yeah, she didn't care. <laughs> and who knows if they were even the Steiner brothers' real mother? The the the, the sister, she looked like she was related to them, but I don't know if that was the mom or not. Um, but yeah, you were right. Steiners just came in; they were pretty hot. They they could have a, a great match with just about any tag team. I had had exposure um, of them from WCW uh, as a kid. I remember when they did come in. I was kind of hoping they were going to wrestle the Nasty Boys, and I was only hoping that because of the great match they had at the 1990 Halloween Havoc. That oh, like yeah, that, that like great match, that match. Texas Tornado match where the Nasty Boys bled. I remember I had had that like was a good match. yeah, it was a, just a wild match and. Uh, so when the Steiners are wrestling the bodies, I, did, I mean, it was a fun match. It was probably one of the, the most underrated matches on that card. And uh, I thought, you know, well, you know, the Steiners, they're going to beat the bodies, but they'll get to the nasties someday. And they, they eventually didn't. But, um, you know, you said you had exposure to the Heavenly Bodies. I didn't know who the Heavenly Bodies were before they came into the WWF, but I did know who Tom Pritchard was based off of his time in uh, – in t- And I don't know if it was Continental. WWF? GWF? Global. Yeah, Global, yeah. Where he did color, uh, color commentary each week on the ESPN show. I don't know who the, the, the play-by-play guy was, but Pritchard was a, um, Tom Pritchard was a, like, it was a Roddy Piper ripoff at the time. He kind of, like, spoke like Piper and kind of acted like Piper. So Craig Johnson, does that ring a bell? It might, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't remember, but I remember, like, that was the, the show in the. Sinclair was also there, too. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that name does definitely sounds familiar. But uh, yeah, I remember they were on three o'clock in the afternoons on ESPN, and I remember um, four or four. Oh, it was four o'clock. Okay, all right. Well, it was around that time when I got home from when I got when I got home from school, and uh, my earliest memory, like I said, was Pritchard doing color for that for that show. But um, also, uh, it was a. Um, it was. It wasn't a scaffold match. It was like a bungee. It was like a oh, bungee cord geez. match. I, I remember forget, that. Who was who was in that match? You should know. Viper against was it Eric Embry? I'm not sure. Was it the Viper? And I can't remember. I thought it was the Viper, which was um, the Rock and Roll RPM Mike Davis. He was definitely maybe. In I'll have to look I it think up. He was fighting Eric Embry in yeah. that matchup. Yeah, those are my. The, the, I think. Yeah, I'm not certain. when I think of global, that those were the two things that came to mind. But uh, not to get off track here. I thought it was a great match. Um, Heavenly Bodies definitely in that match made you believe that they had a shot at beating the Steiner brothers. The one thing I did not like about that match and I didn't like about the Steiner's run in general, I hated their music. I hated that like Michigan fight song music. And I didn't like Yeah, and I didn't like the fact that Rick Steiner wore the same color boots because I was always used to him wearing two different color, you know, style boots when he was in the ring. So <laughs> that was just like that my didn't mean anything in WWF though at the time. No, it didn't, but like overall I just thought it was a a, a great match and the Steiner's worked. You mix Alex is on his hand. The little 
Remember I used to write Alex in the face? So wow, I didn't remember that until you just brought that up. Yeah, you missed that too then. Was that, uh, was that during his time in uh, the uh, the varsity club with well, Sullivan? Yes, when he was in love with uh, Nancy Sullivan. Nancy Sullivan? And Norman the Lunatic and all this other stuff. Wow, now I remember it briefly. Holy Alex. cow. He talked to Alex on the interviews. Alex gave him all his advice. So he was like, he was, he was head before Al Snow had head <laughs> or, or little Jimmy before our truth had little Jimmy in some right, ways. Before Socko became a sock. Before him, Socko became a sock. Wow. So they could thank Rick Steiner and Alex for, for all those royalty checks that they've been getting over the years. But <laughs> your take on the match, uh, Steiner brothers, heavenly bodies for the WWF tag team championship at but SummerSlam. There should have been more buildup on it. The match was fantastic. I liked it. If you just watch it as a wrestling match. And back then we weren't too educated at watching the matches for what they were. Cause it's WWF was not notable for having great matches. Mm-hmm. This was one of the good matches and yeah. told a good story. Good tag team match. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's Southern style, so to speak, of uh, of wrestling because it's the Heavenly Bodies, they control a lot of the match, even though yeah. the Steiners won it. But um, they, they, they carried the pace and it was good. And Cornette on the outside, of course, bringing his little tactics to it. But not enough time. And that that's something that should have been built on and, uh, you know, then we would have believed the threat was there that the smoke, the heavenly bodies would have got it yeah i mean i would have been more more inclined for the match to have more time and they cut some of the other matches short that didn't mean anything like the undertaker giant gonzalez rest in peace match that we will that, that i'm sure that i'm sure you'll There's have a lot going on in you, this show you'll have talking. you'll have plenty to discuss <laughs> later on uh, all right you brought him up earlier Shawn Michaels, Mr. Perfect for the Intercontinental Championship. But before we get into that, there was an interview backstage with Shawn Michaels and his bodyguard Diesel, conducted by Joe Fowler. This is brand new. Brand announcer. new to the announce team. Mean Gene Okerlund. That's right. Gene Okerlund was Gene not Oakland on this SummerSlam. That wow. That's, that's another right. transition that it was. I didn't slowly moved in. I don't remember being upset about that because I was a Mean Gene fan, but I remember like, who the hell is this guy, Joe? Fowler. And if I'm not mistaken, I want to say like he was involved in commercials or something, Infomercials. like infomercials. Okay, yeah, he didn't yeah. Sell you anything? It was like QVC kind of stuff. Yes, yeah, so, and that's probably what he's doing today. For all I know, still he doing. It's very long. No, he did not. Was that the one and only show he was on? He was on a few other things. Didn't he uh, do some merchandise in the crowd? Didn't he try to sell some stuff on the stands, maybe? Was it him? I, I remember Barry Dedinsky from 1995 that used or, to do uh, that. The other, the Oriental guy, what was his name? Um, Charlie Min. Charlie Min. And then uh, Stephanie Wyan. There were some Stephanie. horrible ones. Yes. They really had really gone into some <laughs> desperation with Mania, and they had some horrible uh, tryout announcing going on. That's right. Oh, my goodness. But Joe Fowler was uh, thrown right in there, you know, kind of like the Mike Adamley at the time period, just thrown into this mix as an announcer. And he did about six or seven interviews on the on the broadcast. So I'll he give his feet wet pretty good. Yeah, I'll give him credit. I mean, he tried. It wasn't like, you know, he, he stumbled over his words he knew how to you know at least uh you know talk in front of a camera and he had a presence because he had experience on television but you could tell like even at 10 years old i could tell like this guy doesn't know what he's talking about you got to follow the business a little bit to know what you're talking about yeah and as a fan you knew if somebody was just phoning it in and didn't know what he was really following so yeah that's now it's Everybody you watch really doesn't <laughs> have too much knowledge of any of the depth of wrestling. Yeah. Just read the lines. Yeah. But back you, then, uh, 
he didn't look like he fit in. No, no, not at all. But uh, this match fit right into the card. Shawn Michaels, Mr. Perfect for the Intercontinental Championship before we got to SummerSlam. This really kind of began at WrestleMania 9 as uh, Mr. Perfect lost to the narcissist Lex Luger. And uh, after his, uh, his uh, crushing defeat, he makes it to the backstage area to look for Luger, but ends up running into Shawn Michaels. And the two in, in, uh, begin... Uh, their rivalry with a, a backstage brawl at Caesar's Palace between the two. Um, not too long after that, Mr. Perfect was the reason why Shawn Michaels lost the WWF Championship to Marty Jannetty on the same episode of Monday Night Raw that the one 2 3 kid beat uh, Razor Ramon in that upset victory. And then Michaels winning it back a few nights later in Albany, New York, with help from the debuting insurance policy diesel who was once vinnie vegas in wcw uh which then now brings us to this match mr perfect Shawn michaels intercontinental championship build as you know a, a battle between two of the greatest intercontinental champions of all time uh what was your take on marty Jannetty and Shawn michaels because in in their in their rivalry because I was a big Rockers fan as a kid, and I was thoroughly disappointed when Michaels split the team up and put Janetti through the barbershop window. And I always felt like, as a kid, Janetti was kind of playing catch-up, trying to get to Michaels. And they had that one match at the Royal Rumble that year, and then he ended up getting fired. And then they rehired him a few months later, and he didn't, you know, he had that, that he returned on that Raw, he won the Intercontinental title. But as a kid, I thought Michaels and Janetti were going to, fight for that championship all the way to SummerSlam and Mr. Perfect just kind of swooped in there and, and got the, what did you think Michaels and Jannetty should have had the, should have had a, a match on a bigger stage like SummerSlam? Absolutely. However, um, you know, you're looking at a situation where Marty Jannetty had his problems and he never really shook them off. And when he did some disappearing and he came back, they, they still tried to, to go with it, but He's just one of those guys you, you can't depend on him. You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And we don't know, but boy, I've, I've you know I've heard the stories, and, and Marty will not deny either. He was he was he's a wild he guy. Living by the day. And yeah. If he didn't make it tomorrow, he was just lucky that you know people like Sean and a few others in the company and Vince always gave him extra chances because he really messed up a lot. Yeah. And um, I think that the best thing was Michaels because if you looked at his career, he was going to make it, and even though he became pretty bad at least he, he had his own issues too care of him he was i don't think he was as bad as marty 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 had some serious drug issues i think michaels was more into taking other things that you know whatever it may be i think michaels just had more talent vince saw that just like we saw brett when mm -hmm. he put night aside yep and these were the people that he had to rely on because people wanted to see good matches and you know flair was in the company and other people like yeah. that so you had to have people that could go that kind of way yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember at 10 years old, um, you know, being disappointed that Marty wasn't going to get another opportunity at Shawn Michaels, especially knowing that Diesel had helped Michaels regain the title. Um, I wasn't. Here we go. Another. I'm having tough transition with this. Uh, I was not buying Mr. Perfect as a good guy. Because Mr. Perfect was so good at being bad and telling everyone how perfect he was that 
I was I just what I didn't like him as a good guy. I was like I to me I just felt like he was still sneaky. There was still something strange about him, you know what I mean? That like, you know, when's almost like when's the other shoe going to drop when it came to Mr. Perfect because he just he just exemplified being a bad guy. So, um but I I recognized his ability being very good and going back to 2 years prior his SummerSlam match with with uh, Bret Hart when Bret Hart beat him for the Intercontinental title, that was that was the train of thought I had in my mind going into the match with Michaels where I was like, well, it's going to be an awesome match because Mr. Perfect's a really good wrestler even though I don't like him. He's a really good wrestler and I I personally felt this match kind of fell short. You know, a lot of people say that this is a SummerSlam classic, but no, not at all. I I thought I felt this was this didn't live up to a battle of the two greatest Intercontinental Champions of all time. There probably is a reason for that. Um, in '92, I think it was '92, he had lost the title to Brett, the Intercontinental, or was it '91? '91. But he had a back injury. Yep. And he was out for a long period yep. of time, and he really never came back from that as good as he ever was in the past. Yeah. And he wasn't out shortly. He was out shortly after this match, too, with a, a back injury again. Yep. And he was out for years because of it with the Lloyds of London policy. So I don't think he really be, you know, got himself back 100% where he could go like he had used to. And you remember Mr. Perfect from yep. So the new Mr. Perfect that, that Michaels was in the ring with, Michaels was like the better athlete in the match. Mm-hmm. Michaels was, was, was the star. And also, I was expecting to see a title change because... You gotta have a title change at a SummerSlam. There's never been a pay-per-view that WWF had had at the time that had title matches, SummerSlam or WrestleMania that didn't have a title change. Yeah. The Intercontinental Title changed every single year prior to SummerSlam '93. Wow. This interesting. Was the one interesting time, statistic. Yes. Yeah. This is the one time it didn't happen. And what was the reason for it? Is it be- Michaels? Did he not? Did he start getting that little uh, arrogant head going and thinking maybe I don't want to put this guy over today? I'm going to change it. I don't know. Maybe it was like you said, Mr. Perfect wasn't exactly the Mr. Perfect of old, and they couldn't rely on him to yep. be the Intercontinental Champion with his ability, you know, it, it, not going downwards, but you know, with him not just being the the performer that he once was. Correct. I mean, that, that could be the case, too. I do remember, like, I'm like you, where I do remember having thoughts that, you know, he might take the title. There's a good chance he'll take the belt um, because he had gotten in Shawn Michaels' head and he had helped Marty Jannetty win the title, of, you know, a few months prior. But I also remember, too, and I think you might remember this, um, when he wasn't having his issues with, uh, with Shawn Michaels and Diesel, he... Uh, he uh, was uh, competing in the uh, the King of the Ring tournament against Doink in the qualifying match. They had three qualifying matches on Monday Night Raw in succession in order for them to qualify for the tournament. And I remember that was probably the matches with Doink were probably the closest to the Mr. Perfect of old that I remembered at that time in terms of his ability in the ring. Yes, absolutely. And you know what? Doink being Matt Bourne, so underrated. Oh, yeah. But another one, and that seems to be a lot of the talk, it just had some problems that yeah. you couldn't count on. I mean, you really couldn't put him in a spot where you could push him because you never knew if something bad was going to take place. And, yeah. yeah. And he didn't last much longer either after SummerSlam 93. No. I think that the 93 match, it was his last match as a, as a, um, as a heel. Mm-hmm. Went to a face, and after he became face, he was phased out, and he was he was fired by the company. And, uh, and they brought another guy. They brought yeah. uh, was Ray Apollo. Uh, Ray Apollo. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and that wasn't very much after that. He, he Joink Matt Bourne was barely a face. 
I mean, yeah, he, he had a short run as a as a good guy, and he, I had a eh, I wouldn't say I had a hard time, but that was uh, he was so good as an evil clown that like you know the things he did. Oh, we'll get into one of those later. Yeah, oh yeah, we we, we definitely <laughs> will. Um, but you know, just to kind of put a bow on the the, the Shawn Michaels Mister Perfect match, uh, definitely did not live up to the expectations that I had that I had hoped it was going to for the Intercontinental Championship, especially at a SummerSlam. Like you said, the statistics, the title has always changed hands up until that year's SummerSlam, and. Uh, Certainly not one of the more memorable Shawn Michaels matches. Shawn Michaels gets credit for a lot of great matches, but this certainly isn't one of them. And it's shocking that that didn't happen, but you know, it's, it happens a lot. You know, sometimes you just have higher expectations than what you're given. And I'm sure if they fought again in another match down the road, which they didn't, but if they did, besides a house show, of course. But yeah. If they did have another match, I'm sure it would have been a lot better than this. This is just a one-off. It didn't seem to fit and didn't work out. Yeah. Next match on this card uh, was uh, didn't have a whole lot of buildup. It was kind of tied into the Razor Ramon, Ted DiBiase uh, storyline where, uh, you know, the one, two, three kid had uh, upset Razor. Then he upset DiBiase. Then he upset DiBiase yet again on the uh, the SummerSlam showdown. Uh, you know, at the time, uh, it was a rematch from their uh, their wrestling challenge match. The two of them went one on one against one another, and uh, the reason why the one two three kids wrestling IRS because IRS, who was supposed to be banned from ringside during that match, interfered attacking the one two three kid. And during the commentary of that match, Razor Ramon wasn't in the building; he was on the phone, and that was kind of like the endorsement Razor Ramon was giving the one two three kid at that time. Uh, so there really wasn't a whole lot of reason to get behind uh, the two of them facing one another, with the exception of maybe the sympathy that they had created for the one, two, three kid being such a, an underdog going into this match this early on in his WWF career. Well, he, the match was not very long either. I think IRS kind of dominated the match as well. Yeah. And uh, he, I think he finished him off with a write-off. It was he, yep. he, The crowd was not into it. So, uh, you know, he had his teammate there, DiBiase, in the first match with Razor. That was, you know, an opener. It was pretty good for a crowd response, but mm -hmm. this was just dead. This was that match that they just put him in there, and the crowd wasn't really into IRS. They kind of liked the gimmick, but not really into it. And the kid just didn't look good. So how could you get behind a guy that was struggling in the whole match and is not going to deliver it? So that was just one of those matches that nobody really remembers that was even on the show until you talk about yeah. it and bring it up. My my only memory of the match was that going into it, I thought, well, you know, the one two three kid defeated Razor Ramon. He defeated the Million Dollar Man. He could definitely defeat IRS, and it was kind of a shock. Like I thought, like because he had gone on such a losing streak in the weeks leading up to that first match of Razor Ramon, that I thought, okay, now he's going to be on a winning streak. So IRS will just be another name tacked onto it, and I just found it kind of kind of strange that uh, he didn't come out with the victory against IRS because. What did IRS do really after that? You know, he kind of bounced around the Intercontinental title scene a little bit with Razor Ramon and didn't really have a concrete, I don't know, he was, he, IRS, he was easily hateable, but he didn't really, I don't know, he didn't really do major things. Well, don't forget, if you don't, maybe I'm thinking too much, but DiBiase is leaving the company. Yeah. Who's your one guy you got to push now? Yeah. Singles because the tag team's going to no longer be together. So IRS probably had to take over a little bit of that. Throw him spot. a bone a little bit, yeah. Yeah, all right. Speaking of bones, we discussed him just a few minutes ago. Uh, Doink the Clown. 
this match was originally billed as Bret Hart and Jerry the King Lawler. Uh, this was where, um, you know, we'll, let's go back to Bret for a minute here. Okay. 92, late 92, he wins the WWF Championship from Ric Flair, just kind of out of the blue. Has that run with the title, going into WrestleMania, fights all challengers, loses to Yokozuna. Hulk Hogan comes in, swoops in, takes the op, takes the championship. Brett tries to bounce back from that by winning the King of the Ring tournament. Goes through Mr. Perfect, Razor Ramon, and Bam Bam Bigelow to become the first King of the Ring of the World Wrestling Federation, which isn't exactly true because they used to hold King of the Ring tournaments on house shows and non-televised events, and I believe... There was a King of the Ring crowned at the very first wrestling classic. If I'm not mistaken, you might know this better than me. Uh, the King of the Ring. Yes, what about it? When Brett and the crown, yes. No, not the, well, not not that, but before 93, they used to hold the King of the Ring tournaments at... Um, Foxborough Stadium. Yeah, the one in Foxborough, but they had... Uh, Providence, Rhode Island, they, the latter. But the, the, the wrestling classic, the one in Chicago, they held the King of the Ring tournament. Was it Junkyard Dog? Yes, that 1985. One? 1985, yes, correct. Okay, see, I, I, I kind of had a feeling. But anyhow, Brett wins the King of the Ring, and then he gets confronted by Jerry the King Lawler, which was my first exposure to the King. Um... <laughs> You know, other than seeing him in the after magazines and trying to figure out who the real king is. And then you just kind of saw like Brett 93, he, you know, would, it was a roller coaster for his character. He was on his highs and then he hit his lows. And once you thought he was going to kind of gain some momentum, then he just kind of got knocked back down a little bit. And Lawler was part of that process. Um, your exposure to Jerry Lawler before this time period. Well, I read a lot of magazines. Yep. So being an after mag type of guy I knew what was going on or so I thought even though I'd never seen Jerry Lawler ever wrestle a match other than maybe um, I think I saw him on Pro Wrestling USA on a New York station that we had gotten in 1984 oh wow yeah he was there and then he did some USWA and some uh, GWF on ESPN he had a couple of matches there so I was familiar with him and uh, I knew he was small and I also like you said being an avid tape trader I used to get Memphis so I see a lot of his promo work and some of his matches that were in the studios down there. Mm-hmm. I knew he was gift for gab, and he was one of the funniest guys, a lot of one-liners and jokes. And uh, he put his put his mouth where his, you know, he won every match. Everybody that came through his territory, he defeated. So he had credibility. Mm-hmm. So coming in against Brett as the king, well, a guy that built his whole career being the king and defending as a king, I believed he was the king. I didn't think Brett was the king. Even though he had won the tournament, now you have a feud. And that's what Interesting. the was back then. So if you have everybody that followed Jerry Lawler, everybody knew he was Jerry the King Lawler. Yep. They knew him better than Harley Race the King. They knew him better than the Macho King. They knew Jerry Lawler was the King Jerry Lawler. Wow. Always will be from Letterman Show in 1982 when he threw coffee at Andy Kaufman. So, <laughs> yeah. Or what happened the other way around. But... He slapped the shit out of Andy Kaufman. That's <laughs> right. what he did. Yes. He slapped the shit out of him. So, I mean, you, you have something there, and uh, I thought it was a great feud, and I, I, I was into it. I yeah. thought it was going to be good. I thought it was good for both men's career to have a feud like that. I was hoping that, you know, Brett was kind of kind of dispose of him because at that point, you know, Hogan was gone. I wasn't really into Luger um, as the American hero. So, like I said to you earlier, I was I – was, 
just starting to really get a feel for Brett and 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 get into him. So I was kind of hoping he was going to dispose of Lawler pretty quickly. Um, not be not because I felt that Lawler was beneath him, but I. I wanted Brett back in the title picture because I at least enjoyed his time as the champion. I, I was, it was something different um, early on, but uh, some of the things that went on during that rivalry heading into that SummerSlam. I mean, there was a match on Monday Night Raw, for instance, where uh, Brett was wrestling Bam Bam Bigelow, and uh, they were in the Manhattan Center, and it, it was uh, Jerry Lawler had appeared at, at the, uh, the in the balcony where Stu and Helen Hart, Brett's parents, were sitting, and uh, really kind of shook them up with his insult. The things that he would say uh, at the time regarding his parents and the Hart family in and of itself were uh, definitely for me at 10 years old. I was like, well, I can't wait to see Brett beat the shit out of him. Like, I, I can't wait to see him really get his hands on him, you know, and, and beat the Burger King because that was what, you know, Brett had labeled him as. Um, so it worked. Yeah, it did. It definitely did. It definitely got me behind him. That was the, probably the bright spot of this show for me was this feud in this match. What I love in particularly about it was in the be- was um, going back and watching it recently to, in preparation for the show was uh, when Lawler came out on crutches and he explains the story as to how he got into a car accident, why he can't wrestle, and then Bobby Heenan, who is my opinion the greatest color commentator of all time uh is backing up lawless story saying i was there he had to pull you know uh, children out of a bus and you know save their lives and there was a car that was on fire and you know it was just classic you know uh the the classic bad guy trying to get out of the situation and uh it threw me for a loop that he that he uh he chose doink as his uh as his his self-appointed court court jester because uh you know i didn't really see you know doink was kind of doing his own thing and doink was you know causing havoc with crush and other guys but uh you know i thought that was a a, an interesting twist probably all that was on the that wasn't on the show that was available though yeah the card that they knew could have a good match with brett um and as doink makes his way to the ring he's got two buckets one bucket's filled with confetti he throws in the crowd and then the second bucket who we what we thought was filled with confetti actually was filled with water and he splashes uh bruce hart and owen hart who are both sitting at ringside uh cheering bruce he didn't get Owen. oh he didn't get owen oh i know he got bruce i thought he got owen too get every drop of that bucket on bruce only what a rib (laughs) you think that was a rib or you know it was was a rib rib. it was a rib yeah and owen was in on it Owen was in on it. Wow, interesting. But Owen's part was, don't get me wet. That's cool. <laughs> so if you watch, Owen doesn't get wet at all. Where'd you hear this? <laughs> I don't remember. But you don't remember? Yeah. You remember it's a rib, though? Yes. Owen Hart. Owen was always on the ribs. What if it was a rib, Owen was on it. So. Well, let me ask you something. Was Owen Hart's attire that night a rib? Uh, I don't know about that. I don't know if Martha put him up to that. The leather black leather pants with the ca- the snakeskin cowboy boots and then he had like that cute. like it was cute, it was cute. <laughs> <laughs> but if you watch bruce gets irate he gets pissed yeah because he wasn't expecting that kind of crap to happen he yeah, got he soaked he didn't the see whole it coming but and it seemed like owen you you could tell he's laughing a little bit but yeah he continues because bruce is, just wants to get involved and, and save face and, and look good and attack doink anytime he can owen continually jumps ahead of bruce and stops him but without stopping him it acts like he's gonna go after um doink himself yep. to cut off 
Bruce from really going it's in. It's like, no, I want a piece of him, not you, yeah. He was mad. Bruce, and you know Bruce, we've seen it a hundred times. And he just, he, and you've heard it, he, he gets mad at any little thing. And he's yeah. in business for himself many of the times, as most people would say. And this is pretty evident. He did not like what happened. And I wouldn't either, honestly, but I don't think I would have done it like that as part of the show. But Owen continues to, to cut off Bruce by going after Doink, but not doing anything, just running into six officials and slowing up the process. And Bruce was shoving a couple of referees, too. I think he, like, he shoved Danny Davis down on the, on the ground at yeah, one point during that. Like, three, four, even after the match, when Doink had lost the match, he was still going out there. When Doink went out there, he was trying to get him again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because at one he point, like, they tried down. climbing in the ring. Yeah, when Lawler jumped in with the crutch. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, even... Owen, he was pretty much a bouncer as well. He was trying to stop Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> Before that took place, though, I thought it was... A, I thought it was a damn good match between Brett and Doink. Doink played the the sneaky, um, cheating, you know, as they say, chicken shit heel. Yep. Um, definitely, you know, working over Brett, and but at the same time, um, giving you giving me at least the hope that all right, this may be another obstacle Brett has. Let him beat the clown, but you're still going to get a piece of the king, whether whether he wants to or not. And uh, I, I really enjoyed the match, and I was I was kind of hoping that uh, you know Brett was going to uh, win with the sharpshooter, but Lawler came in with the crutch. Bobby Heenan said it was a miracle. He's walking again, and then uh, we thought Lawler was leaving, but uh, Howard Finkel through his earpiece had said President Jack Tunney had uh, instructed him that if Lawler doesn't return to the ringside area and compete in the match with Brett, that he would be suspended indefinitely from the World Wrestling Federation. And, of course, we saw that, the, that Lawler had no choice, and they got in the ring, and Brett got a piece of him. Um, the most interesting part of, about this match for me personally, and I'll let you comment on your thoughts on the match itself, was the end when uh, – Brett had uh, Lawler locked in the sharpshooter. And I'll never forget when I watched this match back, uh, you know, I didn't watch it live. I rented it at the video store, Blockbuster, mind you, Blockbuster Video. Talk about a throwback here and kicking out of two. Uh, I, uh, I, at 10 years old, I felt Brett's anger because. He had gone through so much in that year. He was the WWF champion. Then he got screwed out of the title. Then he won the King of the Ring. Then Jerry Lawler ruined that. Then Jerry Lawler terrorized his family and his parents. And Bret Hart's character just seemed to always come up short. And I, I, I felt bad as a kid that, like, he was going through all this. So I, at 10 years old, like, I sympathized that, like, he wasn't getting – you know, he wasn't letting go of that sharpshooter. And so that was a moment for me where it was like I saw a different, more aggressive side to Bret Hart at the time. And that's what kind of struck me about this match. Well, one thing that really um, got Bret ticked off, I think, was with the match, Mauler came in with the metal crutch and cracked it hard over Bret. Yeah, he split that thing in half. Um, that was uh, that was a shoot. I mean, that was, that was pretty hard. Yeah. So, Brett had a receipt to give. And I don't know if three and a half minutes of the sharpshooter was too much of a receipt or not. Yeah. But um, yeah, supposedly he, he wasn't going to let it go. He was pissed off. Wow. And, um, they said Lawler could not walk backstage the rest of the night after this. Oh, he sat like, I mean, when he, <laughs> he was in trouble. Yeah. He I almost broke him. He really did. You know, us Rosenbluth boys, we've wrestled over the years, you know, especially when we were younger and put each other in the sharpshooter, figure four, scorpion deathlock, whatever. And you sit back and you crank back with that leg. I mean, it hurts. It's not. It's not <laughs> Lawler was not a good fan. Uh, a lot of people in WWE did not like him, WWF. They just because 
What did he do all his career before he got there? He trashed the company. He always put everybody down. So now he's working for them. And they were shitting in his crown. They were doing all these pranks on wow. him. They were doing all kinds of... Th Nobody liked him. And Brett certainly didn't like him. It's everything you just explained with his year he was having and the way that Mauler was... I mean, Mauler's semi-shooting the way he, he portrays his character and in real life, the things he's saying. The things he said about Helen and Brett probably are really things that he wants to say. They're not just jokes. <laughs> Brett kind of takes everything personal. And that crutch shot, if you watch it, when, when Mahler hits him, that was, I think, the trigger that really saved him. caught him, like, right in the back of the head with yeah, that thing, that, that like thing neck area. Half and everything. It was not a good hit. Jesus. So um, Brett had every reason, to, and, and I'm sure that for storyline purposes, you've got it. The good guy always got to win. And Brett was on the road, of course, to going to bigger, better things. We did not know at the time if... The world title was in the future for him. We thought it was still going to be Luger, but the uncertainty was starting around this time with if Luger's going to get it or not, and Brett's going to go back to it. So we had to keep him strong, and he, he ended up doing real well in this. See, match. I didn't know that people, you know, behind the scenes didn't like Lawler. I I, had, I I never knew of stories. I've heard of guys ribbing each other, and you know, like the 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 I've heard that Lawler had his crown shat in before, but I didn't know that was because of 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 hatred towards him because of his his uh his statements from his days in uh in memphis well don't forget he ran a territory that paid 25 bucks a night and these guys some of these guys like the undertaker and other people worked that territory with Jarrett, and, correct yes yeah but lawler was a booker for six months out of the 12 with Jarrett, they would take six months off six months on so but regardless Jarrett was responsible as well the paydays were cheap you, you would starve. Mm -hmm. Everybody starved down there. Asking yeah, I've heard they've not had good reputation. Well, who's responsible for that? It's Lawler. Yeah. So, and, and plus the way that the territory was booked, if Lawler didn't like you, you're not going to do anything with you. So, you know, you were really at his mercy if you wanted to work it. And a lot of people gave it a shot, mm -hmm. but there was no payday for that. That's why nobody stayed there and remained in the area. Did you ever hear the story of Jerry Lawler and the time he punched Paul Heyman in the mouth when Heyman was working in, uh, in yes. Memphis? Yes. About the whole scaffold match angle. Um, I, I know he punched him again in um, WWF when they were feuding with ECW, but um, no. So Heyman, I believe, was managing, and Lawler, Austin, Austin yeah, and Lawler was going to be in a scaffold match. I think it was him and Bill Dundee, yep. against Idol and Tommy Rich, and Paul Heyman was managing. Uh, Idol and Rich And the whole premise of that scaffold match Which was very similar to The Road Warriors Midnight Express Scaffold match from Starcade Was that the build up was really about Lawler getting his hands on Heyman and throwing him off the scaffold In the same way that the Road Warriors were going to dump Cornette off the scaffold at that, at that Starcade <laughs> And they had built it up and built it up and built it up for such a long time And then The night before uh, the scaffold match they're going over the, the 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 details of the spot where Heyman's gonna you know get thrown off or get knocked off and he says I'm not going up there and Lawler's like you've been doing interviews for week on for weeks on TV telling people that you know I'm not gonna throw you off that scaffold and you challenged me and now you mean to tell me that you're not gonna even get up there he's like no I'm afraid of heights and Lawler just like out of the blue got so mad that he, you know, would refuse to, to, to listen to him because Lawler was the booker at the time, like you said, and he just punched him and broke his jaw. I never heard that story. You never heard that story? Totally yeah. believable. Broke his jaw. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he ended up throwing him off the scaffold. 
<laughs> I think he ended up getting his way, and he broke his jaw, and he still ended up getting the payoff that he that, that he wanted for that storyline. The end of payment in Memphis. I believe that was yeah. I, I believe that was his end, the end of his tenure. I think he went to the AWA after that when he did the uh, when he was managing uh, Dennis Condry and uh, Randy Rose. Um, but yeah, I didn't know all of that stuff about Lawler, so uh, you know. Um, yeah, that's that. That's that. When it comes to Jerry the King Law. All right, this next match here at SummerSlam 1993 was a match that was kind of thrown together at the last minute, uh, mm-hmm. from my recollection in 1993. Ludwig Borga going one on one with Marty Jannetty. This was probably really designed to uh, to to give us viewers. Uh, a sneak preview of what Ludwig Borga was about. Uh, he had about two months in in the WWF, I remember, with some matches on Wrestling Challenge, Superstars, I think even Monday Night Raw. Uh, he was undefeated at one point, and it looked like they had a couple different directions they were putting him in, uh, matching his undefeated streak against Tatanka's, but more importantly, um, it looked like he was aiming at Lex Luger, regardless of whether Luger won the title or not from Yokozuna later in the evening. Uh, n- nothing to really write home about this match when it came to the two of them. I mean, Marty Jannetty bumped around pretty good for Borga, but, you know, Borga to me was, I don't know, he was just, it, he didn't seem very, um, uh, not animated, but what's the right word? He had no charisma, really. No, he didn't. He didn't, but I mean, he just... Bland. It, yeah, Bland would probably be the best way and to put it. They didn't really have any foreign menace to throw at Luger, the American hero at the time. Yeah. What they resorted. Tony Hahn was from uh, Japan, and um, that was Ludwig Borg before he came in. And he, he was actually a pretty respectable fighter out there. He was a shoot fighter, yes. correct? Yeah. But um, this time, they even gave him Luger's finisher, the torture rack, which was paled in comparison to the way Luger would strap it on. But uh, Borga's finisher was the same move that Luger had used. So you could see the seeds are being planted in the matchup. Originally, too, I think that um, Rick Martel was supposed to be in this matchup. But for whatever reason, they ended up switching it over to Borga because Martel had left the company. So originally it was a part it was gonna be Rick Martell against Marty Jannetty, which really had no build up at all. No. So Borga kinda of got But it would have been a much better match because of the caliber of talent that these two guys were you know right. were and able to possess. To show the, you could see the direction that Borga was 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 heading in. Um they they were trying to push him as a as a menace from the outside. Yeah. So um, nothing to write home about with this match, and like I said, the the finisher was the uh, the torture rack. So as he was doing that in the matches prior to that, so you could see the seeds were being planted to go after. How how long was he in uh, in, in in WWF following this event? I feel like he wasn't with the company very long. No, I don't think you could go past a year of him being with the, the WWF. He was not in WrestleMania. No, one year. He was in Survivor Series. I think they had a, a Luger's team against Borga's team. I don't think he was even in the Rumble. So he might have been done after that. Yeah, I remember him being on the, the team with uh, Yokozuna and uh, and the Quebecers. And then they, they Tatanka was on the other side. And they had Tatanka taken out when they had Yokozuna and Tatanka's undefeated streak with help from Ludwig Borga and that kind of set up that USA versus foreign fanatics match at the uh, the, the Survivor Series a few months later um, 
And then he went to UFC at one point, right? In the early days of UFC, wasn't before like before it was legal? Like, wasn't it like illegal in some states? I don't know if it was before or if it was after, but um, yes, he did uh, do a little bit there. Yeah. But nothing, you know, nothing spectacular. But he did. Uh, he had his name out there, and I, I had heard, and I don't know him very well, but I had heard he had some success in mixed martial arts. So. Okay, all right. Well, another match that, uh, I, I mean, it wasn't anything to write home about, but I'm sure we have a lot to discuss, was the Undertaker-Giant Gonzalez rest-in-peace match. Uh, this rivalry really started, if you want to go back to the 1992 Survivor Series, when The Undertaker defeated Kamala, who was managed by Dr. Harvey Whippleman, in the casket match. And Whippleman had vowed that he was going to get revenge on The Undertaker, uh, Whippleman bought, you know, bided his time and waited until the 1993 Royal Rumble match when, out of nowhere, in the middle of that match, the giant Gonzalez, uh, airbrushed uh, bodysuit with fur uh, hanging off of it, enters the ring and has his sights set on The Undertaker and dismantles The Undertaker in ways that his character, that was probably the first time you really saw vulnerability from the Undertaker character with the Giant Gonzalez. Well, Gonzalez had the size, and he also had Bill Alfonso every single time he stepped in the ring to communicate with him about what was going on because he had no English in him to really talk to anybody. He was Argentinian, right? Yes, he was Argentinian. And Fonzie spoke Spanish? Yes. I did not know Fonzie that. He was his communicator. You'll never see a match without wow. Fonzie out there. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> I did not know that. I knew. I, now that you say that, yeah, okay. They came together. And, uh, which, you know, it just, it was one of those matches where um, I think the urn was something that had the reason why The Undertaker was in trouble all the time because didn't um, Paul Bearer not have his urn? It was yeah. stolen. Well, there. Well, well. Let's let's just backtrack a little bit. After the Royal Rumble, you had WrestleMania, which was that stellar match oh, between the two at Caesar's Palace, where um, Giant Gonzalez used the uh, the the cloth doused in chloroform oh, yeah. to uh, to uh, you know get him every time incapacitate the Undertaker, causing the disqualification. Undertaker winning that match by DQ, and then uh, not too long after that was when Giant Gonzalez and Mr. Hughes, along with Harvey Whippleman, attacked Paul. Bear and stole the urn, and that's when Undertaker was kind of flying solo for a little bit in in the weeks to uh, you know to to follow that, which then sets them up for the the rest in peace match, which uh, wasn't really described what a rest in peace match was. I guess it was another way of saying it was a no disqualification match. But you're right, the urn played a big part in it because Undertaker didn't have the urn, and he didn't have Paul Bear. Uh, Paul Bear was not. You know, with him at the time, he was on hiatus from his his injuries, I guess you could say, in, in the storyline. And Harvey Whippleman was in possession of the urn. So this was, like I said, the first time we saw some vulnerability from the Undertaker character. This match, thank God it was the last between the two of them because it was just it was it was fucking awful. It was it was bad. I don't like to shit on guys and their ability and with especially with this podcast and what I'm trying to accomplish with it. But Undertaker will agree. it was not good. Undertaker it was. Undertaker will agree with you and he'll say yes. So. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure he Long would. Feud too. I mean, they really dragged this thing out. I'm surprised that you know six seven months, but back then everything was slow processed. But boy, uh, not every guy was on TV every week, though. That's the thing. Like true. shows were one hour. And so if something took place, you know, three or four weeks you know, before that, you'd get an update maybe a month later because there were so many talents on the on the card that, you know, you couldn't 
you couldn't fit so many of them in a one-hour show. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think after the matchup as well, when The Undertaker had won, I, I, did he win with a clothesline? I think he... Uh, it was some kind of variation of a clothesline, yeah. Paul Bear came out, he had a black wreath, yep. and he ended up getting attaining the urn, and then The Undertaker popped up, got his finish, and uh, I think after the match, Harvey Whippleman was... Um, uh, Giant Gonzalez had turned on Harvey Whippleman. Yes. But to no avail. I think this was the last time we saw Gonzalez in the company. Isn't yes. yes. No, you are correct. This was the last time Gonzalez uh, was a part of the World Wrestling Federation. Of course, you, you and I both, I know, right? You and I both remember him from his time in WCW as Eligante when he was the, he was, I guess they were trying to make him the WCW version of Andre the Giant. Uh, in many respects So I'll never forget when I was a kid My birthday falls in January So uh, when I was a kid my father used to say "You know, If there's one big present you want What is it? I was like I want you to let me order the Royal Rumble And so I'd have friends over We'd have a birthday party And that particular Royal Rumble took place on a Sunday afternoon At like 3 o'clock and uh, that was before, you know, pay-per-views in primetime. We also remember SummerSlam. This particular SummerSlam was on a Monday night um, in, in August of 1993. So SummerSlams used to fall on Mondays. I remember SummerSlam 91 fell on a Monday night. Um, and, and, you know, that, that Royal Rumble fell in, in, uh, 90, uh, in 93 on a Sunday. Anyhow, uh, not to go off on too much of a tangent when he came out all my friends were like and they weren't hardcore wrestling fans like me they they watched it and but they weren't super hardcore into it like i was there like who is that guy and i was like that's eligante like i just knew him and i thought it was the coolest thing in the world that like i was the only person in the room that knew who he was going you know into that you know segment on the royal rumble but uh yeah, this was the last time that anyone had seen Giant Gonzalez, Eligante, whatever you want to call him, uh, in professional wrestling, as far as I know. I don't think he went anywhere else. And if he picked up the skills and he was able to, to, to you know, become good, he could have really gone somewhere. A man of that size, if he was able to just have a, you know, just get it a little bit. Yeah. But he never got any of it. I'm sure the language barrier didn't help either. Not at all. It's just that this was a, 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 a was it a Jim Hurd fine, but it was a WCW fine that they saw this big guy, they knew he was seven foot seven legit. They had to have him. Yeah. It was their answer to Andre and, and his career because he was seen in WCW, went right into WWF and then it didn't last long from there. I think at that time you said you mentioned Jim Hurd who's most famous for some of the the, the biggest uh, creative blunders in the early days of WCW you know right after they were uh, uh, bought from uh, Jim Crockett and uh, if I'm not mistaken Giant Gonzalez was either trying out or he had made the team for the Atlanta Hawks he was an Argentinian basketball player and that's how they picked him up didn't work out with basketball so they thought we're paying this big bastard a whole lot of money let's see if we can get him to wrestle and uh they 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 gave it a shot and uh you know, like I've said earlier, I wasn't a very sophisticated viewer back then. I was, you know, bastard. I was, I was a kid. Yeah, with all due respect to, you know, I don't like the, yeah, an airbrush, yeah, an airbrush outfit. I thought that was really even at ten years old. I thought that was silly. Basketball, because I find that hard to believe he can really do so well at that either. Other than like Duncan, I can't see it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've never seen it personally, but I guess he had. A, this is all speculation uh, tried for the Atlanta Hawks and it didn't work out or he made it, but injuries, I don't know. So he ended up wrestling, but yeah, this was the last time we'd saw him and thank God. Cause it was not the best outing from him and the undertaker and another match that, uh, didn't really, um, 
hit you in the feels, as the kids would like to say these days, is uh, the six-man tag team match with the Smoking Guns and the Native American Tatanka as they defeated the Head Shrinker, Samu and Fatu, and Bam Bam Bigelow in a six-man tag team match. And what's interesting about this match, and you, you and I touched upon this off-air, was that this wasn't the original match that was planned for this event at SummerSlam. You want to uh, dive into what the original plan was for this match at SummerSlam? Well, I think it had something to do with Sherry Martell and Luna and, and becoming a mixed tag team match with the two girls involved. However, Sherry had, uh, I think, been released from the company. However, the story goes she was changing her mind on wrestling and going to cosmopolitics. Whatever. Cosmetology school and be a hairdresser, yeah. Three times in a row. But she was going to do that. But um, the word had gotten out that, that she also had failed a substance uh, test. So be that as it may, whatever happened, she left the company. And then Luna had broken her arm, I believe. So something happened where she could not work as well. So it totally put the women out, and they made something with tag teams. They had a smoking guns or feuding with the um, uh, head shrinkers. So now you had to mix that in with Tatanka. And you had yourself a six-man match, and of course Luna is a part of Bigelow, so you had all the things going on that that worked, but it was just thrown together because of situations. Was that now? I don't remember this, and you might, but was that mixed tag match advertised for that SummerSlam? Was it on TV where they announced it, or was this something towards the end? Uh huh. Um, They didn't. They knew that Sherry was a cop, but I could be wrong, and that's something I'd have to check into. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, because the. the association with her and Tatanka stemmed from uh, being in Tatanka's corner at that WrestleMania earlier in that year when he wrestled Shawn Michaels for the uh, Intercontinental Championship. And Michaels was accompanied by Luna at the time, uh, which I thought was pretty weird because, you know, with all due respect to, you know, Luna Vachon, who is no longer with us, I thought she was one ugly lady. And why would Shawn Michaels want to <laughs> shack up with some ugly lady, especially when he was just with uh, Sensational Sherry? So was, it, was this Sherry's actual last match in the company at ringside then? or I, I, At Mania? Yeah, no, at uh, SummerSlam, because she was still in the corner. She was not. She wasn't in the corner for this match. I thought she was. No, she was not there for that match. Um, yeah, she was nowhere to be found. It was just Tatanka and the smoking guns. And the, uh, the the head shrinkers and Bam Bam had Luna and Afa in the corner. So she didn't even make it to, to uh, the Palace of Auburn Hills in uh, Detroit, Michigan, the Motor City for that match. But, uh, I mean... It wasn't a bad match, a six-man tag. It was. It, it, it's actually very good. I, I yeah. watched it recently, and uh, the finish, uh, people were into it because I think we had at one point both the head shrinkers and Bigelow mounting the top rope, and they were going to put Tatanka down with uh, three headbutts at the same time. Yes. And Tatanka just got out of the way, and uh, the place erupted. Yep. They were really into that, you know, and then he got the roll. I think he got the roll up for the pin. Yes. So, uh, good, you know, nice Nice pop at the end for the victors. Uh, not a bad match, but like you said, no build up. So, what did you think of Tatanka? Because he, going, you know, he had that undefeated streak for such a long time. As a kid, I remember he, he just felt very important, and he was one of those guys that was a part of that new generation wave at that time in '93. Even though, like I said, tough time transitioning with this this you know this this time period in WWF. But I remember Tatanka as a kid looking at him like he was an important wrestler like what did you think of him and what what do you think happened as to as to why he wasn't more successful than 
people thought he would be? That's a good question, and there's really not an answer for it. Um, it seems like every time Tatanka had momentum and he'd win match after match, the brakes were always put on his push, and he didn't really get anywhere except mm -hmm. mid-card level. Um, he had the talent, and he had the, the fans are behind him. Yep. And I couldn't understand why at least not an intercontinental title run would yeah. happen in his career, but... And he just seemed like, for whatever reason, he wasn't chosen to go any further than the level he was at, which is unfortunate. Yeah. But he deserved it, and he was a good employee, and he was there for a few years, and he did a good job. Then when he turned heel and joined the Million Dollar Corporation, he's still... That caught me for a loop. I didn't see that one coming. That was cool. I'm not going to lie. That was cool. I remember watching that SummerSlam with friends, and I was like, what? Because I thought Luger was going to turn. You know, I thought for sure. Like, I wasn't, you know, sophisticated viewer at that time. I was still just, you know, a, a 10, 11-year-old kid. But, yeah, that was uh, that, that definitely threw me for a loop. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, Bam Bam Bigelow can't knock what he's brought as, as you know, a, as a big man into the industry, a guy that was gone way too soon. I felt like someone that um, really could have contributed more uh, to what he brought. Uh, wasn't the biggest Smoking Guns fan as a kid and um the head shrinkers i didn't like them because they just used to wrestle barefoot <laughs> so they were just another one of those samoan teams that you had seen and i liked them when they were in other groups sst when they yes they were world class they because they were so good there yeah because they were allowed to tonga kid was with them right yes yes but they were allowed to to perform at any at their highest level mm -hmm. but when they went to wwf they just didn't really catch on there we had seen their father Samoan uh, Samoans were together and it just seemed like they weren't going to go anywhere and, and it even got worse when uh, one of the head checkers was gone they put the barbarian in his Sione yes. they renamed him Sione yeah um, why yeah. did Samu leave do you happen to know he must have had the same problems a lot of the other people we talked about earlier uh, <laughs> uh, it's unfortunate from what I was hearing you remember that stupid storyline they did where, like, they, they, they tried, because Sione, Barbarian, wore boots. They tried to get Fatu to wear boots, and he couldn't <laughs> jump off the top rope, so he had to take the boots off. And remember, they were trying to get him to adjust to wearing wrestling boots. I, I do remember that, but I, I don't remember too much. I remember that about as much as I remember Kamala Bone. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was rather silly. All right, we are at the main event. The Lex Express has made its final stop at the Auburn Hills Palace in Auburn Hills, Michigan, outside of suburban Detroit, as Lex Luger challenges for the World Wrestling Federation Championship against Yokozuna. We kind of touched upon it briefly in regards to the uh, the 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 status of the company, the transition they were going in, Hogan being gone, Brett having the top spot, but they're not super confident with Brett. They put Luger in this spot as, you know, the Yankee Doodle Dandy on steroids. And, uh, you know, like I said, you and I both remembered him as the total package. For me personally, it was something I had a hard time getting into because I always thought Hogan was an American hero. Uh, this really started... On the USS Intrepid, July 4th of 93, when Luger slammed Yokozuna on the Intrepid and essentially earning himself an opportunity at the World Wrestling Federation Championship. And then from that, that point on, the Lex Express cross-country call-to-action campaign, if you will, took place uh, between uh, Luger and, uh, you know, with the with the bus, the, the, the tour bus. So... Um, what was your take on on Luger and being the guy to slam Yokozuna and then, of course, the, the call-to-action campaign heading towards SummerSlam against Yokozuna? 
I think everything was done correctly. I think that if you're going to pick a guy and you want a replacement for Hogan, and if you're thinking along the same lines of a Hogan, who better do you choose? Um, it just that Lex didn't fit the role. He didn't take to it. The fans didn't buy into it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what halted it. I'm the intrepid when he came out and he walked to the ring and he did the slam. It was a good day. Yeah. We were behind it. He took the bus. And the promotion was there. And when he came out, he still had momentum. What killed him is the ending of all this. There was not a drop of momentum after that because it seemed like everything that you believed in wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Now you had your doubts. And then when you saw, not to jump ahead, but when you saw Ludwig Vig Borga as his opponent, you really weren't excited to see this. Yeah. So a lot of, th- and that kind of grounded him as to going any further as well. I'm sure Borga did not help his career get any hotter. Mm-hmm. So... But everything that started off with this feud with uh, Yoko, it, it, it's perfect for what the story should be. And the, the sold-out crowd and Jim Cornette as the mouthpiece really uh, brought it in. And uh-huh. he had the, the national anthems before the match and Vince on commentary hamming it up like nobody better back then could do. And Bobby Heenan, of course, yeah, in the corner for Yoko. Everything should have worked out. We had not seen one title change yet on SummerSlam. Everybody that watched SummerSlam or WrestleMania knows that a title change has to happen on the big events. We're paying our money. This is where it, this has got to happen. Yeah. There's no reason why you shouldn't have had this result the way you expected it to be. However, things were not that way. It Interesting. Was to see. Yeah. I mean, you know, let's circle back for a minute here before we get into the contents of the match. Uh, the, uh, like I said, the call to action campaign, we kind of talked about it on that, that hidden gems part of the WWE network where Luger was, you know, he threw out the first pitch of the Chicago White Sox game. He was doing radio tours. He was kissing babies, autograph signings. He hit all the big landmarks in the United States, Mount Rushmore, um, the southern and northernmost points of the United States of America and different. See him sleeping with his. With his, holding his, uh, what did he have in his hand? He was sleeping with some teddy bear or something. It was a teddy bear. If it was like a red, white, and blue pillow, but I mean, like the whole, like <laughs> I think he was caught off guard on that. Yeah, I mean, he was really out cold. No, he was. Yeah, long day. Yeah, I bet. You know, sitting in a bus all day and shaking hands, that could, you know, that, that could put some stress on the on the brain. But uh, yeah, this was a, a rather interesting time. Um, obviously, they were they were trying to. I wouldn't call it a quick fix, but they were trying to quickly make you forget about Hulk Hogan and in many ways make you care more about Lex Luger. Because like I said, he went from being the narcissist really quickly to about a month later just showing up and deciding he's going to slam Yokozuna and all of a sudden he's an American hero. So they tried to make you forget about that. Um, And 10-year-old me, 10-year-old Dave Rosenbluth was like, he was the narcissist. He knocked out Bret Hart at the WrestleMania brunch before WrestleMania 9, the morning of. And, you know, he, he, he had that, that, that match with Tatanka, King of the Ring, and he tried to cheat to win then. And they had the, 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 the non-finish where neither, neither of them, you know, advanced. I just... I almost felt like with Luger, the same way I felt with Mr. Perfect, that, like, you know, I wasn't really buying that Mr. Perfect was a good guy. And I almost kind of felt like, well, you know, when's the when's the proverbial piano going to drop and Luger's going to show his true colors? You know what I mean? Because I always recognized him as the total package. Uh, interesting that you brought up a point earlier about, you know, all the momentum in the world and the results were vastly different um i think they creatively put themselves in a position um they painted themselves in a corner 
uh, and that began on the the August 9th episode of Monday Night Raw when they had a contract signing. And it was revealed that Mr. Fuji and Yokozuna hired Jim Cornette to be the official American spokesman for them. And then Cornette had orchestrated in that contract for SummerSlam that Luger wear a protective arm pad on his forearm because he had a metal plate in his arm from a real-life motorcycle accident. But the other caveat to that contract was that uh, Cornette said that this was Luger's one and only shot, and if he did not win and become WWF champion, he would no longer get an opportunity at the title. Uh, so you kind of, in some ways, as a kid, I remember, it's like, well, he's got to win. How are you not going to have Lex Luger win and be the WWF champion? Because if he doesn't, then what's the point of him being in the World Wrestling Federation anymore if he can't wrestle for the title? Well, you were let down a lot. Yes, yes, I was. Hogan and not being on it, and Macho Man not being in the main event. And, yeah. You know, did you ever buy Jimmy Hart as Hogan's manager, dude? Oh, I hated that. I hated so that. So many things. Oh, I, I hated that. You had to buy that you were being forced that you didn't want to. Yeah. And like you said, just in this, this case, too, there's just so many things that should have happened that didn't. Yeah. And that if, if he's going to never get another title match, and stipulations back then were taken a lot more seriously He's okay, now, now match. he's not gonna get another title yeah. match. Yeah, nowadays they do that, and the guy will get a title match the next week. You know? right. <laughs> like, <laughs> so the belief was there. How could Yokozuna get away with this? And why would you ever have a result on a main event of a pay per view? It was the first time probably that it ever happened. A count out, a count out, victory. Yeah. You know, as a paying customer, you'd seen some really bad results with some crappy matches. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and you saw a couple of good ones, but nothing was memorable on this show. This was going to be the one thing that could really make it a, a, a plus or a negative. And I don't care if they went 25 minutes and it was hard fought. It wasn't that good, but the result is what also disappointed everybody. In the place, you could see how flat the ending was. The crowd reaction, yeah, they were happy because Luger's hand got raised, but they all knew, and you could see it, and it wasn't as, as crazy. They knew the belt wasn't coming. What a disappointment. Yeah. Everything that you expected to see did not happen at SummerSlam 1993. Well, they built up so well that, you know, from the early parts of that main event, like you said, the presentation, the, the Joe Fowler interviewing Luger's bus driver, and they're trying to, you know, <laughs> get people to relate to Luger um, and, and what kind of a guy he was. And, you know, Hank Carter was his name, and he was like, you know, just the way he hangs out with the children, he talks with the kids, and he's so personable. Lex Luger's just a good, genuine, good, genuine man. And that you know, guy didn't sell me. Yeah, no, he didn't. No, he didn't sell me either. That's for sure. But um, just the, like I said, the presentation with that, the national anthems for both the, the Japanese national anthem and Aaron Neville coming in to sing the, the the United States national anthem, Macho Man being the master of ceremonies. As much as I didn't like that, it made the match. It still made the match important because he he was Macho Man was seen at least for me as an important figure in wrestling and, and in the WWF with the, the the red, white, and blue and interviewing fans in the crowd dressed. And, you know, Todd Pettengill decked out in the red, white, and blue, interviewing the fans in the crowd. And it was up until the bell rang, like, you had that feeling like this is it. Like, this is what Luger's worked for. He didn't slam Yoko on the Intrepid for nothing. And then, like you said, it didn't matter if he went 25 minutes. He, he slammed Yoko. Yes, that was probably the biggest pop of that whole, uh, of that whole match. But to win on a countout, you know, I was... I knew the, I knew the finish of the match before I watched it because I had read the I had read the the magazine 
and I got to see it obviously later on VHS at the video store, but watching it back, I even knowing the finish, I was still disappointed because he saw like, he clotheslines. I mean, he knocks him out. The ref counts him out. Luger's excited, like he just won the belt. And then they drop the balloons and the and the confetti and all that stuff. It's like, what's you're not the champion. What are you celebrating? A victory? Okay, big whoop. You know, like you didn't win the title, but by the same token, you can argue that. Yes, Bobby Heenan brought it up in commentary. Luger won the match, but he didn't win the title. And Vince made it a point to kind of save save the logic in the story. And it's like, well, it'd be hard for Jack Tunney and WWF officials to not give Luger a rematch because he won. So as much disappointment as I was going through with the finish of that match, that Luger didn't win the WWF championship, that one line kind of gave me hope that there was an opportunity for Luger down the line, despite the clause in the contract. Well, being a kid and paying your money, and every time I paid my money, I was always happy with a pay-per-view. This is the time I go, what? I didn't get what I paid for. So I was upset. Yeah. Because I didn't know if Luger was going to get another uh, chance. And certainly Survivor Series wasn't going to be worth that chance because at the time it was only teams facing each other. So there's no title match there. And maybe the Royal Rumble. So we had a good five months to maybe a long while, yeah. get a shot. And if you're going to wait till Rumble, it's probably going to be till Mania. So disappointing because now you got to go all this time. Mm-hmm. What is uh, is there more value in having Yoko hold the title until uh, March? I, this is a time period now where Vince McMahon had always decided on having face champions. Yeah. But for the last few years, he decided to go with Ric Flair, and he let him have a little run a couple times. So now you're seeing that. The money may be in the chase, and they're doing it that way too. Was if Luger had won, would that have boosted business, or would you know? Did Yoko because he held the title and became more dominant? Did that pick up business? Granted, the opponents weren't that great, so I don't know what would. But where what would Luger do as a draw if he had gotten the title? I don't know who he would have fought besides Yokozuna on return matches. That's that's a, that's a good question. That's tough because. We did a, a, sh- a show recently, uh, our second episode here on Kicking Out at Two, uh, called The Trading Places Concept, where we took the results from SummerSlam 1997 and we switched the, the, the results and we tried to map out the direction that those characters and the storylines would have gone without in a fantasy booking kind of way, because I hate to do that. And that's a good like trading places concept like what would have happened if luger did win the wwf title like where how far would made in the usa lex luger have gone as the wwf champion been a pinnacle and that would have been it maybe. yeah you know and where would yokozuna go from there you know what i mean and uh, another factor that you can kind of throw in there is bret hart bret hart was still owed a rematch for the wwf championship if you remember he never got that rematch from that wrestlemania so how would bret hart come into play i mean my guess off the top of my head um 35 year old me right now without fantasy booking it i would say i could see two ways this goes luger like you said reached the pinnacle and that was it and like he reached the mountaintop and he can't go any farther and you've just the blooms off the rose or luger did it all for the money 
and the old Lex Luger, the total package, the narcissist, whatever you will, you know, scammed the, the, the United States of America into thinking that he was their hero and he only did it for the WWF championship. Well, that you're also going to have a heel turn to a face to back to a heel and within a year's time. Yep. So that's kind of really shading it out. Yeah. And that kind of pissed off the people, the, the fans back then, because we had already seen too many people in roles that we didn't expect like you said, Mr. Perfect and Hulk Hogan. Yeah. So now I don't think that that would have helped out if Luger had changed back after doing all this. Plus, he really garnered up some steam. So yeah. why turn on it? Yeah, that's a good point. And would you would you buy into Bret Hart being the saving uh, person to do the the fighting for you? I think I. I it, Ten-year-old me at the time, yes, because he, he had credibility as the WWF champion. True. Yeah. So I mean, I, that if he wasn't WWF champion before that, and they were going to put him against uh, a Yokozuna or a Lex, a bad guy Lex Luger as the WWF champion, no, I'd have a hard time buying into that. But because he had already had the belt, it, 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 it solidified it for me. I think that um, we're underestimating Yokozuna's worth in this whole thing too. No, you're absolutely right. And. Um, not only did this, this guy, he ended up going in and having a strong reign. Um, he was believable. He had a tremendous mouthpiece. Mm-hmm. And I think he brought a lot of people to want to see him because he was a, quite an attraction. As oh, a yeah. Champion. And not only that, but, I mean, he, he fought two matches at WrestleMania. Yep. Uh, who, who would have thought that Big O Yoko would have good matches, both of them? Yeah. You know, so he, uh, he held his own. And if you did that with Brett and, and Lex and have them do the switcheroo, that leaves Yoko out, who had just gotten the belt back at the King of the Ring. Yes. To lose it two months later at SummerSlam, that's probably not a good move to make. Yeah. Do you think that with this result, like you said, there was so much momentum with Luger, um, you know, having, you know, the, the, the United States of America behind him in his quest to, be, to become the champion. Did you think at that time that, Luger was going to get another opportunity that his character and Yoko were going to meet again for the title. We all know that he had to have another opportunity. Yeah. It was just a matter of when, and you had to be patient for it. And so you you knew it was going to happen, and it did, just just as you knew. But you sh- it shouldn't have gotten that way. I, I really think that Luger, if you're going to build it up the way they did, they went all out with this, and they should have given him something. Even though, like I said, we have coin point counterpoint on you know what the result truly should have been for business perspective mm-hmm. i think that luger at that point just just as a customer because wwf was they were in such a, a, a trench with everything going on that they yeah. needed something to lift it and instead they they made the fans get disappointed with an event overall from you know pretty much top to bottom that didn't deliver on results and confused them in many ways as to what direction the company was going to go in yeah very interesting very interesting take on it all right couple more questions here, and then we're going to wrap this up. Uh, your take on, you, know, you, you talked about Luger and the, the, the driving force behind his momentum going into this, this SummerSlam pay-per-view. We know that he did not win the championship. We know that he had an opportunity at WrestleMania the following year in that, uh, that match with, um, with Yoko, and then eventually Yoko had the match with Brett. Lex Luger's legacy in WWF, good or bad? Can't really say it was good if you're going to compare it to what he accomplished in WCW and if you also look at what he could have accomplished. He didn't accomplish what you would expect him to. When he, when he made the jump 
Starting off as a narcissist was not a jolt. And he didn't go anywhere. And then he did this, and he didn't go anywhere. Uh-huh. And his feud with Ludwig Borga didn't go anywhere. He failed on a championship run at WrestleMania. And then he went into a tag team with the British Bulldog that didn't go anywhere. Yeah. So he really didn't accomplish too much. Yeah. Um, it's still a good career. I mean, he was a feature. He was a headliner there, but... As far as getting the value of what Lex Luger could have brought to the company, that wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to you know to to not argue that point. I mean, uh, you know, do, do you think? All right, here's another question. Do you think had they not did the narcissist, had they not did made in the USA Lex Luger, if Lex Luger came to the World Wrestling Federation as the total package Lex Luger, do you think there would have been? Do you think the results would have been different? Yes, because you would have had the same images of this dominant wrestler that controlled the WCW title for a good year before he went, and you would have had all that in your head that that's the guy that's got to be beaten here, and he's he's a champion in his own. But back then, nobody was going to ever allow a gimmick to be the same in another group, so Mm -hmm. that... Nobody ever carried over the same exact nicknames. Flair was probably the closest thing at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, you know, it's definitely a tough time to to see that because we, I I mean, you must think the same way I do, but the total package coming in and just using the rack and, you know, Heenan as a mouthpiece or whoever they had decided, just being dominant, that's that's money to any base champion. Yeah. And that would have been good, but... The, the talent pool was was not very big with the with the title picture. There wasn't anybody. You had Brett, you had Lex, you had Yoko, and you had maybe a couple others with Savage that was being phased out and to yeah. throw in there. Who else was there to make this a strong battle for the top spot? Oh, you're absolutely you're right. Resorting to what you have in those few people. Yeah, no, you make a, you make a great point there. All right, this you know when when wrestling fans debate and discuss events or moments obviously people rank things as the best and the worst and you know that's um you know that that's what makes some of these debates with with each other so great is that everyone's got a different opinion of course universally you could argue that wrestlemania's 9 and wrestlemania 11 are probably the two worst wrestlemanias in the history of the of the company this SummerSlam, not my favorite i can honestly tell you bill i've probably watched this SummerSlam a handful of you know maybe like six times like in my entire life i watched it for the first time in full uh recently as i was doing research for this for this podcast we basically didn't really have anything great to say about this SummerSlam, with the exception of the brett you know doink and uh you know jerry lawler stuff but where does this summer slam rank for you if you look at it up until 93 Every SummerSlam prior to it was a hit for me. Uh-huh. I every main event was sold well. Yep. Even if it was Desert Storms, uh, you know, the match started, made in heaven and the match made in it hell, still was something that delivered. Yep. And this one didn't. Mm-hmm. In my eyes. Yeah. And um, no, I'd have to but, agree with you. You know what? It's not all about making the fans happy. It's about what makes them want more. So was the right choice keeping Yoko as a champion? I, as a fan couldn't accept that because they had not educated me onto that process yet yeah now you get disappointed a lot when you see a pay-per-view you go geez why'd that happen well i'm gonna watch next time to see what else happens yeah we didn't have that back then we were the good guy always won hulk hogan always had a leg drop to go to give to someone now we're seeing yokozunas and 
and Ric Flair's and, and other people starting to win these matches and others are chasing the heels. So we're getting it different and mm -hmm. a count out victory for, you always expect a pinfall. That's kind of a sour on what you wanted to see. If, if anything, you know, Yoko should have been pinned or Luger, if you had to, should have been pinned if you really wanted to dominate Yoko, but you got to have a good face uh, champion for him, a face uh, challenger for him after that. I don't know. If they never fought again, it probably wouldn't have hurt to pin Luger and to move Yoko into a better position, and it probably wouldn't have hurt to pin Yoko and push Luger in a high position. It's all hypothetical speaking, but it just didn't seem like what they had promoted delivered to me as a fan, and I'm sure that you felt the same. Uh, I, I definitely did feel the same way. One final question. You might have you, you might have touched upon it, but the, the, this just sparked as you were, you know, laying out your uh, your reason behind this event why do you think they did not give Lex Luger the title what is the one thing that you what is the one reason why you feel like they did not give Lex Luger the championship at this SummerSlam event I think it goes beyond what I would know I think it would be something internal and uh, I don't think Vince believed that Lex was what he expected him to be when he came into the company. I think he thought that he could make him into the what he wanted, mm -hmm. and it just wasn't there. Don't forget, he's been spoiled. He had Hogan all those years, and it was yeah. easy. The expectations were there, and, and everything else. He had the warrior. He had company men. Luger was an outsider. He was taking him in. He's molding him. It just wasn't there. And we always had heard in the past about when Luger broke in, a football player and the people that, you know, he was just in it for the money. I think he brought a little of that attitude with him. And after a little while, I think that people started catching on saying, the heart's just not there with this guy. And if he doesn't have the passion, fans aren't going to, they're going to catch up on that. And they're yeah. not going to feel it either. I don't think internally inside WWE, WWF, that they really felt that he was going to be the person to give it all. Yeah, he didn't have a proven track record with them as opposed to like Hogan, Warrior, and Savage. Those guys had a proven track record of what they were able to do for the company, and Luger being an outsider obviously didn't help. And that's why it went with Hart, because Bret Hart was about 8, 9, 10 years in, in his career there, and uh, he was a loyal employee. Mm -hmm. He really was. And he, uh, and you always heard it from him, too. He would have done anything for yeah. Music Man. So, you know, when the company was in a tough time, and people are bolting out, the Ultimate Warriors, British Bulldogs, everybody's leaving, Ric Flair's WCW again, everybody's bailing. You still had Brett. Yeah. And he made a promise he wasn't going anywhere. And Brett's promise back then was solid. Yeah. And it always was. And it, it was until Vince decided that he had to fool him out of the contract to get out with the Survivor Series and screw him over. So it was a, it was a safety move, and Brett was going to be a, a good future draw, and he was going to connect with people a lot better than, than Lex would have. Okay. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to come join me for this. Uh, you know, when I was coming up with different ideas for what I want to do with this podcast and people I wanted to have on, you were one of the guys, and I'm not bullshitting you, I'm telling you straight up, like you were one of the guys I wanted to be a part of this in some form or fashion uh, because of your wealth of wrestling knowledge, the stories that you're able to tell, and just, you know, like I said to you at the beginning of the program, overall, like you're a, a tried and true wrestling fan. There's a passion in there. Despite 
the current day product that's not very good um you still are still watch it yeah we all still watch it deep down in heart you know we all hope it's going to be better each and every week even though it's not i'm not going to trash the current product today because that's not what my show's about i don't like to be like all the other podcasts out there that will just record something every week to complain about what's going on that's not what this is about this is basically a show about reliving the glory days of wrestling and the fun things that you remembered and even some of the not so fun stuff like SummerSlam 1993 so i uh, thank you for coming on here and doing this for me today this was a lot of fun Dave, anytime, and man. you have an open like, invitation i've to... always wanted to come on your show and once i knew you were watching this i you know i'm so glad that you got me now because I didn't want you to get too far ahead without thinking about a Wild uh, Bill Brown. No, trust me. No, the Wild Bill, Wild Bill Brown, if 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 you want, is a regular on this program here at Kicking Out It Too. Uh, you know, would definitely love to have you on board. Uh, you know, in some some future episodes uh, talking the, the the good old days of pro wrestling. So once again, thank you very much. Uh, no problem. Thank you for having me, and thanks everybody. And that about does it for another episode of Kicking Out at Two this week. I'd like to thank my cousin Wild Bill Brown for coming by the studio, chopping it up with me and offering his wealth of knowledge, his insight and perspective, if you will, on one of the more underwhelming summer slams in history. He brought a lot to the table, a lot of stuff I wasn't aware of or knew about. So, uh, Bill Brown, you're definitely welcome back here on this program in the very near future. And with that being said, like I said, at the top of the program, I told you I was going to offer some of my, uh, my my quick picks for some of the, the big matches taking place in Brooklyn this weekend for uh, SummerSlam weekend. First, let me start off by uh, addressing the Tommaso Ciampa, Johnny Gargano, NXT TakeOver, last man standing uh, NXT Championship match. Uh, this has been an old school rivalry brewing. Seeds planted early in the Cruiserweight Classic in late 2016. Their, their association as a tag team, their run with the NXT tag team titles, you saw some of that that brewing during that time period in their matches against the revival and the authors of pain uh fast forward to take over chicago when champa turned on gargano after they lost in that ladder match to the authors of pain and that really kicked things into high gear uh champa returns eight months later after a knee injury to make johnny gargano's life a living hell and now we're really off to the races it's just been a non-stop roller coaster of emotions as a wrestling fan watching these two uh with their rivalry over the last close to you know two years so uh, i'm really looking forward to seeing this match they had a great non-sanctioned match at takeover new orleans they had a great chicago street fight at takeover chicago just a few months ago and i don't expect them to disappoint in this last man standing match uh, as far as my pick goes uh, like the old school wrestling fans would say, the money is in the chase. And with Tommaso Ciampa as the NXT champion, I feel like there are a lot of guys that could wrestle him and be in a storyline with him that will benefit from him greatly. An individual who is really making his mark in NXT, really making NXT must-see TV when it comes to WWE programming because there's a lot of WWE programming these days that just isn't must-see TV really. And uh, Tommaso Ciampa is really standing out from the pack. Probably the best bad guy in all of WWE right now. Um, 
definitely in the top three in terms of best bad guys in all of wrestling uh, but that's another discussion for another day so with that being said Tommaso Ciampa with the victory uh, at NXT TakeOver Brooklyn 4 and moving on to SummerSlam I'm not going to get into all the matches because I did that on the Ken Reedy show earlier this week you can check out the link over at blogtalkradio.com search the Ken Reedy show and it's the SummerSlam pre-show uh, Ken Rocky and myself offered our uh, offered our predictions on the 12 match card I'm not going to go through 12 matches on this card, but I'm going to go through some of the matches that uh, are important and I have some strong interest in. So for starters, let me uh, get into the uh, Ronda Rousey Alexa Bliss Raw Women's Championship match. Uh, Ronda has done no wrong, in my opinion, uh, since she started. She works hard. She's very athletic. She's catching on very quickly. She has an audience that she has brought over to WWE programming and she's a relatable, likable character to a lot of people. Um, so I, I truly feel like um, as much as it would be interesting to see her lose this match and really build a story of Ronda's transition from MMA into pro wrestling and WWE and that chase to becoming the top, you know, performer in the women's division. Um, I mean, we've seen her dominate MMA. It would just kind of be the same story in WWE um, if, if she, you know, were to dominate uh, and and, and be at the top of the scene. So a, a, a Ronda loss would make things very interesting for her. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing it. I wouldn't argue against it. But uh, with this Women's Evolution pay-per-view coming up in October, Ronda's a big name in mainstream media. She hits all the talk show circuits. WWE loves mainstream media attention. And with Ronda and the Raw Women's Championship on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon or and on several different uh, media platforms, it's just a win-win for her. It's a business decision, and I understand it completely. So with that being said, if they want to make this Evolution pay-per-view an annual thing and they want to make it um, stand out and really, really, really get people to tune in, I think Ronda Rousey as the Raw Women's Champion will definitely help that. So uh, I'm going to go with a Rousey victory over Alexa Bliss as she becomes the new Raw Women's Champion. Moving on to uh, The Miz and Daniel Bryan, a match I'm very much looking forward to. Both guys have great chemistry. Both guys are polar opposites. Their rivalry since Daniel Bryan's character has been introduced to WWE television. The off and on uh, hatred that they both have for each other uh, has been really good t- TV. Uh, Ken and I talked about this on the Ken Reedy show earlier this week, and there really hasn't been a great rivalry in the last uh, five, six, seven, almost a decade, uh, you know, 10 years uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, WWE rivalries. And I think Daniel Bryan and Miz have the potential to be that next great rivalry of this era of wrestling. Um, with Bryan's contract rumored to be coming to a close on September 1st, uh, I feel like despite that, a, a victory for Bryan really won't do him much. Um, a victory for the Miz as he's continuing to climb. He's been red hot with the reality show, uh, the, 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 the movies and television projects he's been involved in and just really, really building his character and becoming a force. Nobody thought they would see Miz in this position. Uh, I certainly didn't. And I've been pleasantly surprised and I'm glad I'm wrong. Uh, I'm definitely a Miz supporter. I also am a big fan of Daniel Bryan, but Miz is truly um, one of the best of this era and certainly doesn't get enough 
credit for what he contributes. And, uh, you know, Daniel Bryan's Daniel Bryan. Everyone loves Daniel Bryan. His underdog personality is something that you can't not like. So, uh, you know, with that being said, this match should be a great match. Both guys work really well together. They they have instant chemistry, an instant backstory between the two of them that's going to make for a great match. And Rocky kind of made this prediction. I'm going to kind of piggyback off of Rocky. I mean, we all agreed that The Miz was going to win the match um, on the Ken Reedy show. But Rocky kind of made a prediction where he had said, you know, Miz is going to win. He's going to gloat and boast about this, uh, this big victory and driving Daniel Bryan out of the WWE back onto the indie circuit. And Brian at the last minute is going to realize, you know, I'm not going to get humiliated out the door. I have a lot left to give to WWE, and that's in the form of kicking the Miz's ass. And he'll probably sign his contract live on TV, and then they'll continue that rivalry between uh, him and the Miz. So, uh, you know, that's a a prediction Rocky had kind of foreshadowed, and I'm kind of piggybacking off of that. So the Miz with the victory over Daniel Bryan. We move on to the WWE Championship, Samoa Joe and AJ Styles, two TNA stalwarts in a prime spot on a major pay-per-view like SummerSlam for the WWE Championship. That's something that a lot of wrestling fans, myself included, probably didn't think was even possible five or six years ago. But these two guys they have great chemistry together in the ring their history in tna their matches that they put on were phenomenal no pun intended and i look forward to this match definitely being the match of the night Uh, i look forward to it the most on this card and right now they're really building a foundation with aj styles as being probably one of the greatest of this era with this run as champion and what he's been able to do with guys like shinsuke nakamura kevin owens the match he had with brock lesnar at survivor series last year was fucking awesome one of my favorite brock matches and definitely one of my favorite aj matches and so the match with the him and joe at SummerSlam, i expect nothing less than you know a, a great contest between the two Um, But right now, I think AJ Styles is on that path of becoming one of the greatest, if not the greatest of this era of WWE and a victory over Samoa Joe would certainly help further that. But it's not over between the two of them. I expect to see more from them following this this match at SummerSlam. So with with that being said, victory goes to Styles, still WWE champion, but it's not over yet. And now the final quick pick of the uh, the show. SummerSlam 2018's, you know, expected proposed main event, if you will, Roman Reigns challenging Brock Lesnar for the Universal title. Um, This will be the fourth time they've had a match on pay-per-view in a singles match. WrestleMania 31 was probably my favorite outing between these two because of the, the, the crowd and the story that was told. And then Rollins, you know, unexpected money in the bank cash in didn't care for the WrestleMania 34 match. I thought, you know, Brock's character made Roman look like too much of a bitch. Uh, the Saudi Arabia cage match didn't really care for that either. And so we're going into SummerSlam in Brooklyn with a crowd that's very hostile. Uh, a lot like a lot of other crowds across the country and all over the world that don't really um, take a liking to Roman Reigns, which is unfortunate because I'm a big Roman Reigns guy. I don't think he sucks. Never have. I just think that, uh, you know, creative has done him no favors in terms of where his character stands. They try to make him this sympathetic underdog, and he's a big Samoan badass. People just don't buy it. You know what I mean? He don't give him the Daniel Bryan role. Daniel Bryan and the guys like Johnny Gargano, they play that underdog really well. Don't give that to him because I don't think people buy it. I have a hard time buying it. That's for sure. So um, going into this match with Brock, I expect you know a lot of physicality, very hard hitting. 
but you also got to take into account a few factors. There's Brock's potential uh, future in WWE and his potential future in UFC. He made an appearance at a UFC fight recently and wanted to, uh, you know, let it be known that he's back and he's going to fight Daniel Cormier. There's rumors that that has, is going to take place the night before the Super Bowl in February of 2019. Uh, and so, uh, you know, him holding the Universal Championship, you would think that WWE creative and management would like to get the title off of him. So it's absence on television doesn't upset or anger the fan base, but uh, they threw us for a loop at WrestleMania with all of us thinking that Brock was leaving to go to UFC and look what happened. So um, there's that situation. And then there's the fact that the fans aren't receptive to Roman Reigns. You also have to take into account the money in the bank cash in Braun Strowman holds the briefcase, but he's scheduled to face Kevin Owens later in the night or earlier in the night, I should say. And if Braun loses, that briefcase is Owens. And so, you know, will one of those two enter the picture and try to cash in on either Brock or Roman Reigns? I mean, you know, there with a seven-hour SummerSlam expected between the kickoff show and the main card, you put this match on last year, you're asking for, uh, you know, negative fan backlash if you don't give them the result that they want. And I'm not saying that that's right and you need to cater to the fans because of that, but... Um, you know, sometimes I feel like WWE creative and management puts themselves in these situations and then they wonder why, uh, you know, the reaction they got is what they got. You know what I mean? It's just it's unfortunate. But um, I personally feel like that they're going to kind of throw us for a loop again. And, you know, Vince loves that mainstream media attention. He loves getting crossover. And I feel like with Brock as his champion going into a UFC fight, he's going to love the, the advertising and the marketing behind Brock Lesnar, the WWE universal champion going for the UFC heavyweight title against Daniel Cormier, the night before the Super Bowl, in the thick of WrestleMania season. And if he happens to win and becomes UFC champion, then the prospects of promoting a Brock Lesnar title, match at WrestleMania is huge. I mean, if you really think about it, imagine the New York metropolitan area, MetLife Stadium, East Rutherford, New Jersey, New York, Northeast wrestling fans are very loud and very vocal. WrestleMania crowds have become that. And I think they've piggybacked off of Northeast wrestling fans, um, you know, vocalization in wrestling events. And I can just I could just picture whoever's across the ring from Brock that they are the number one good guy. They are the guy that's going to save the day and save the Universal Championship from Brock going back to UFC with that title and holding it hostage. So um, Vince loves the crossover media. He loves that crossover appeal. He loves the mainstream advertising. It's too hard. It's too much of an opportunity for him not to pass up. So I can definitely see Brock leaving SummerSlam with the championship. He's advertised for the, the following night on Raw in Brooklyn. So maybe they do, a you know, Brock wins and they do a Money in the Bank cash in. I really don't know. But all I can tell you is that my prediction for this match, I'm going with a Brock Lesnar victory. As far as to what they do with Roman Reigns' character, I'm, I'm really at a loss as to how they you know have him bounce back without going through the same formula that they've been going through with him for the last couple of years so SummerSlam 2018 ends with a Brock Lesnar victory I don't think somebody cashes in money in the bank maybe there's a tease but I, I think Brock leaves Barclays Center on Sunday night with the Universal Championship and then rides off into the sunset with that title uh, going into his you know return to the Ultimate Fighting Championship and MMA all right, with the SummerSlam picks now out of the way, allow me to remind you all, facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two. 
If you haven't already, hit the like button and join us. Be a member of the hashtag KOA2 crew. That's right. We're over on Facebook. We got pictures, debates, memes, videos, any kind of throwback retro pro wrestling discussion. It's all at your fingertips. And the same with all that applies over at Twitter. Your KOA2 crew membership. That's right. It applies over at Twitter. Give us a follow. Our handle is at kicking out two. That's K-I-C-K-N-O-U-T and the number two. The same fun shenanigans, madness, bullshit, whatever you want to call it. 140 characters or less all right that about does it this week it's time to put this show down for the three count join us next week as justin and good friend of the show dennis j levy join us as we're going to discuss some of our uh professional wrestling guilty pleasures for those of you kind of curious want to know what that is well i mean you're gonna have to tune in next week but i'll give you a small little preview have you ever gone through life and there's a overwhelming majority of people that disagree with something or they've seen on tv or in the news or in the media um, but you are the minority and you are on the opposite end of the spectrum well that's a guilty pleasure and there's guilty pleasures in pro wrestling there's been plenty of instances creatively behind the scenes whatever you will whatever's transpired over the years in the history of pro wrestling there's been things that a lot of wrestling fans have disagreed with that i've liked that i you know I didn't mind it. Well, Justin Dennis and myself, we're all going to reveal our own guilty pleasures next week here on Kicking Out of Two. Okay, show's down for the three count. It's time to get out of here. I will catch you all next week.